Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. All right, great day, everyone. I want to welcome you to our Geo Strategy Roundtable discussion. Uh, super excited for this discussion today. Uh, most of you know all of the contributors that are participating in today. So I uh, want to welcome London Paul, uh, Matthew Arrett, uh, Bellis will be joining shortly, uh, V Gorilla, and also Ken Shortgren Jr. Uh, thank you for tuning in, and please do us a favor. Make sure you go ahead and hit that like button and also share this live stream discussion. So, gentlemen, Great day. How is everyone doing today? Fabulous. <laughs> not, not all of you all at once. Coherent. Uh, also, want, do us a favor, if you could, please uh, jump over and, and support uh, each of the commentators' individual work that they do. Uh, so V is over at roguenews.com. V and CJ are over v at roguenews.com. The seriesreport.com with uh, London Paul. Also, uh, Matthew Arrett's uh, Substack that you can uh, visit his work there that you're very Subscribe. familiar with. Uh, Ken, uh, shotguneconomics.com and also the gadfly bhx.tv. So, gentlemen, let's let's kick this off. I'd like uh, to do just a quick, you know, just opening statement, if we could, by each one of you, uh, just before we jump into the topics outlined today. Uh, so we'll start with Paul. Uh, opening statement, please. And then we'll go to Matthew next. Okay, well, I think probably in a very broad sense, the world, I've used this analogy before, is divided between what's left of the old reality and what the new reality is. The old reality is the unipolar world, which uh, the United States is determined to try and continue to exist, even though large parts of the world are rejecting it and want to embrace the multipolar world. Uh, and it's therefore, even though most of the nations who are being sort of almost coerced into keeping this uh, unipolar world going are falling by the wayside themselves. I mean, that's principally, the, well, not entirely the Five Eyes Alliance, but also sort of G7 nations and the European Union. And they, they need to recognize at some point that the unipolar world's dead. And they have to make some extremely important decisions to reverse out of that. And the flip side of that, of course, is what I call the new reality, which is the multipolar world, which the Chinese, the Russian, Southeast Asia, increasingly parts of Africa, Central America, South America are embracing to varying degrees. And that's where we're at. And effectively, it's not two worlds coexisting. It's just two different philosophies uh, playing out. One is collapsing, and the other one is the, the ascendant, rising, I wouldn't call it power, but dynamic that will dominate the world for decades to come. I think that's probably just for me in a nutshell where we are now. Very good. Thank you for that, Paul. Uh, Matthew? 
Yeah, that, that was a very efficient use of two minutes, Paul. Um, no, I think <laughs> that that really set the tone nicely, and I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I think that additionally, I would I would just add that these two paradigms, these two systems that currently coexist cannot coexist indefinitely. Um, that attention is built up and, and built has been uh, built up ever more increasingly over the past years, especially since the multipolar alliance uh, really went full hog in 2013 with the Belt and Road Initiative that has increasingly adopted and won over the trust and collaboration of about 136 other countries and has created a completely different alternative political, economic, military, strategic uh, framework, um, very much outside of the influence and control of much of this parasitical thing which has been manipulating the Western unipolar uh, system for a very long time. And just like a, 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 you, could, you could sort of bend a stick for quite some time, um, it cannot just continue to bend indefinitely. At a certain point, that, that tension is building itself up ever more increasingly into a, a breaking point, and you will get a snap. And we're, I, could, I, could, I think that we've largely come to that snap, and currently we're sort of living through the middle of that shockwave where we don't know which system will become uh, hegemonic going into the future. And it's very important for people to subjectively put themselves into that because nobody is a voyeur. Nobody's watching this thing outside of the system. We're all part of the system. We all have a certain responsibility to greater and lesser degrees within the system that we were born into to be agents of, of positive or negative influence. And, and by negative, you don't just have to be a Klaus Schwab, George Soros oligarch actively lighting fires. You can just be by omission uh, a participant in the problem. So I think that in varying degrees, we have to sort of change our, our, our framework from being the voyeur, voyeuristic uh, sort of culture that watches things and experiences to being a more active, positive uh, player in this whole process as we go through this change. Yeah. Yep. Very well said, Matthew. V, go for it. Uh, which one, Velas or V? Uh, v is V gorilla. <laughs> Velas is Velas. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the clarification. No worries. No worries. <laughs> Well, you know, there's a lot of things going on, and as the uh, gentleman so succinctly put it, uh, both um, Paul uh, and Matthew, the days of you sitting on the sidelines and watching this and getting caught up in the salaciousness of it all is over. And I think what needs to happen is that you utilize the time to, number one, prepare, number two, to make the right strategic choices, and number three, to get the hell out of harm's way. Now, whether it's harm's way is that you have a homestead here in the United States or overseas, you need to start moving in that direction because the system as it is right now is breaking. And like these gentlemen have said before and like we're going to go into today, it is a paradigm change. It is a paradigm change. And a paradigm change when it usually happens is something that is never, ever at the forethought of the people that are undergoing that change. When empires rise and fall, it's, it's, it, especially the falling part, it almost happens unexpectedly to the masses. It's incremental and it's event-driven. People always ask us all the time, what about a time frame? What about a time frame? There is no time frame. And I think like, I like what Paul always says, this is event-driven. He always says event-driven because that's what it's all about. It's, we're not on a clock here. But systemically, when you're watching things breaking down at a greater and greater rate, then what happens is that you would know that this paradigm shift is right around the corner. So your time to prepare is now. Excellent. Uh, Bellis, uh, welcome, um, and thank you for joining, and uh, please go right ahead. Yeah, and uh, 
thank you. Uh, thank you all. And, and Matthew, uh, nice to finally meet, meet you. Uh, I'm always amused by your ever-changing bookcases in the background. I don't know if you're using a green screen or you're just very mobile. It's um, all green screen. <laughs> there you go. And uh, v, uh, v to, to the point you just made, um, yeah, the era of not being involved or just hiding under your bed uh, is over. Uh, this reminds me of the old joke in Europe about when the Germans smell something on the border, they want to know what the French are cooking. And when the Russians smell something on the border, they want to know who's about to uh, invade. Um, we are we are facing uh, yet another standoff between the globalists and the believers in the nation state or the nationalists. And for me, in the final analysis, I do I do tend to wonder that um, a bit a bit snarky, and I don't mean it in a literal sense, but sometimes it almost feels that way about uh, when the when the when the billionaires have all the money, what are they going to do with it? Um, because if they have no products to buy, it becomes like a bad rendition of Soylent Green. It's like, well, now you're in charge of everything, and you can't buy a thing or go anywhere. <laughs> That's all for me. Great. Thank you for that, Velas. Appreciate it. Uh, Ken. And Ken, um, I scheduled you a lot. I wasn't sure if you're going to be joining. I know it's very early in uh, your time zone, so thank you for getting up early to join, Ken. But go for it. Yeah, in my humility, I see you saved the best for last <laughs> just kidding anyway for those who of course who know me uh whether uh shotgun economics the gadfly or, or here v at uh at rogue um the one thing i have focused on because my background is history and political science um i judge things based on trends and cycles we are still probably only in the third inning of uh, the second and third decade populist movement that occurs in every single century. When, of course, the significance of that is go back to Rome, 412, go back to uh, the Napoleonic era, go back to last year, or I mean, last century. Uh, this is the era where empires fall. And it's high time that the United States empire is going to inevitably fall. The outcome still is in question, but... Uh, what we are seeing right now is inevitable. So uh, more than anything, I'm reminded because so many people uh, prefer to just sit in the sidelines, as mentioned a little bit earlier, I'm reminded of Pericles, what he once said, just because you do not take an interest in politics doesn't mean politics won't take an interest in you. And everything we see today uh, is affecting you in some capacity whether you're well off, whether you weren't really affected too much in a state that was uh, locked down, uh, over, overwhelmed by the COVID pandemic uh, BS and all that. But either way, every single one of us is being affected whether we want to or not. And it really comes down to the point of, are you going to sit and allow circumstances to dictate your future? Or are you going to join in, pick a side, and be willing to fight for the future that you want for you and your family. Yep. Very well said. Gentlemen, thank you for the opening comments. Uh, appreciate that. And want to jump into, you know, so we we have a geostrategy group that we discuss topics and some of those that were submitted uh, first by you, Matthew, in regards to some of your topics. And, uh, and, that, and that it relates to the Arctic as a platform for development. So I thought we could start there and then open it up and have everyone uh, jump into that conversation. So, Matthew, if you could start us out, please. 
Absolutely, yeah. And, and I mean, this is something that a lot of people have been looking at for, for quite some time um, in the neocon apparatus, as well as within the multipolar alliance, um, as, a, a, as the next sort of hot point, either for major global military confrontation or for cooperation. Um, China has recently made its, uh, its new uh, five-year plan. I think it's the 14th five-year plan. It made the, the polar Silk Road its, uh, one of its number one priorities um, going forward. Russia uh, last year, um, Putin made his 15-year plan of Russia based on Russia's Arctic until 2035. Um, he made that the top national priority as well, um, knowing that some of the, the the biggest deposits of rare earth, uranium, fossil fuels, everything is located in the the Arctic, and it's also one of the most un underexplored territories left on the Earth today. Uh, both of these countries together. Um, we know that since 2015, the Eurasian Economic Union began an integration treaty with uh, the polar or with the the new Silk Road. Um, the Polar Silk Road itself was announced in 2018, but it's been evolving fast. And this involves extending the maritime corridors of the uh, the the Belt and Road Initiative throughout the Arctic, where Russia will increase by fivefold by 2025 its uh, Arctic shipping because of the uh, the receding ice caps in the north. So you have a, a, a massive intention to build rail uh, to connect all of the different ports in the Arctic to build new ports uh, with different uh, resource corridors. Um, and a lot of the, this is all peaceful. It's all driven by economic cooperation. If you by by moving material just to get across, like people are like, well, why would you do this? Well, by by moving material from Asia to Europe through the Arctic instead of going through the Straits of Malacca, the Straits of Gibraltar and all that stuff. Uh, the Suez Canal by you, you not only decongest that whole zone, but you cut off five to 10 days of transit uh, over time. That's a huge, huge economic benefit. It's a boom um, to and from Asia. And uh, and also, I mean, if you look at maps of the branching off corridors, the, the Belt and Road Initiative is not just an east west uh, corridor from Asia to Europe over land. It is it's a very flexible, uh, creative modality which has expression all across Africa, which is gaining speed fast um, across Russia, even South America, 17 countries in Latin America and Caribbean have, have signed on to the framework with China becoming a primary investor in the Americas. So you mean, this is a, it's a, it's a very modular idea. It's very fluid. And that's why the oligarchs who love control crystallized, you know, control of things, they hate it. Um, but this definitely has opened up the question of now, well, what will be North America Norway, Greenland, what, what will be our participation in this? Obviously, right now, what we're seeing is a massive uh, speeding up of military policy in the, in the north. We have, uh, what, I think, it's something like $1.5 that's been committed to, by the, the U.S. military industrial complex to upgrading its nuclear forces uh, over the next 30 years. Um, it's meaningless, but they want to take, you know, the, the 40 uh, nuclear missile silos that they have, mostly in Alaska. They want to increase 20, upgrade the rest. Um, it's, it's a lot of saber rattling. It's a lot of belligerence. Uh, Canada is currently totally undecisive right now. It's not committed either way, but obviously when you look at the amount of belligerence and belligerence and spitting in the face of Russia and China from the Canadian establishment, you know where we're going. Um, it's really suicidal. So I think that that is something increasingly defining the, uh, the future. And, you know, I've been writing in the Canadian Patriot Review, uh, for quite some time and promoting the idea that no, we have everything to gain by working with these countries that want economic development, like Russia and China are obviously, yes, they are being forced 
to uh, to do military drills in the Arctic, especially Russia, and to upgrade its its own uh, weapons and response capability because they're being surrounded on all sides by full spectrum dominance policies. But they don't want to do that. They're being defensive. They're not doing it. We're being shown media pictures of them doing it and being told, look, evidence that they're they're going on the offensive. It's not true. Um, it, it's totally defensive. It's reactionary. They would much rather work with us as, as collaborators. Thank you for that, Matthew. Uh, anyone else, gentlemen, would like to uh, contribute to that, either either support or any counter to, to that uh, topic, please? Well, obviously, I completely support it. And I've discussed on my own podcast, and I think I've done it on Rogue occasionally and on the Gadfly about the significance of the Arctic region. And I'm not going to repeat everything Matthew said because he's pointless. But yeah, the, what, what, <laughs> I would add, yeah, yeah. what I would add is, of course, yeah, it significantly Im improves transportation routes for China. We can use that, that northern corridor. What also, in terms of the development, is rather like Russia's Far East and has enormous developments on the way. There's going to be huge developments throughout Siberia and that whole region. And that sort of takes in with what China did in terms of its own internal developments. <clears throat> Excuse me, you're going to start seeing that playing out in Russia. Also, as they start to build out, I mean, you know, we all know Russia has 11 time zones. It's an enormous country. And a lot of it, what, 65% of it, they haven't even began to exploit its resources. Not that I'm saying we should uh, rape and pillage the earth, but I'm just saying it has a resource base that, uh, that the world is largely ignorant of. What I would say, and I'll save the point with regards to what Matthew said about the, the military components of this, because I think, for me, that's the first point I'd like to, to discuss. So I'll park that because I think it's better to tie the whole thing together. But now he's absolutely spot on, and that's the whole basis and ethos of the Belt and Road or the multipolar world is, you know, we can all work in cooperation with each other and ultimately, you know, the sum of our parts is significantly greater than, than our individual capabilities. And the problem is it's the 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 new reality is is versus the old reality. The only thing is, of course, the old reality is collapsing. It's over, it's finished. And it's just a question of how quickly the United States is allies and in inverted commas understand this and run for the exits because at some point these nations will abandon the United States as well. It's just at this point they don't comprehend the reality of what's unfolding. Yes, yes. Uh, Ken, Bellis, or, or, or V, anything else uh, in regards to that topic or, sh or should we allow uh, Paul? Yeah, I'd ahead. like to yeah, go ahead. say go something real quick. Yeah, it's pretty pretty remarkable what's happening here. And if anybody takes a step back and looks at the grand scheme of things, you look at the entire globe as a whole, right? You look at development, advancements, innovations, technological breakthroughs. It's not happening here anymore. Here, as I'm talking about just you know the Western world in general. Look at this advancement. Look at this incredible achievement with the Arctic um, trade routes. Huge, absolutely huge. And when you look at the fact that the only counter that exceptional stand, i.e., the United States has is a militaristic response. Oh, we're going to put up more ICBMs. It's the same response that you see them do in Africa. It's the same response that you see them do in the Middle East. They're not trying to... Folks, they're not trying to, 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 uh, to lead development. Okay, What the United States is doing on a, a global scale, it's similar to how colonial powers operate in Africa. 
It's all about creating choke points, bottlenecks, stymieing innovation, stymieing growth, stymieing uh, advancements. Now, this occurs primarily because when you've surrendered your economy, the very engines, the motors, the rudiments of your economy, from that which is production-based to what we have today, which is speculation, and you're having a speculative monster, it's only to feed that monster that this economy exists. It is simply designed for the benefit of the few while the ruin of many. And if you look at the, uh, the Americans' response, why does it have to be militaristic? Because we don't make anything else. The Russians have how many icebreakers about to go out there? Seven, five, 11? I think it is 11, somehow, nuclear-powered icebreakers coming online. We, we have like one or two from like 50 years ago. We have nothing. So our response, because that speculative monster, that's Wall Street, the fictitious, fake, phony, baloney economy has to be fed. So money has to be rerouted. And the most efficient way to extract wealth is through the military-industrial complex. And that's what you're seeing. And this is why we're in a very, very precarious situation, because the jig is up. Mm -hmm. Paul, um, I think if you want to go ahead and, and tie in and uh, jump into your, your first topic, that would be great. Yeah, I thought while well, originally I was going to talk about the whole sort of <clears throat> the way the world's kind of now, well, the new reality effectively, the backbone is now Russia, China and Iran. But I wanted to to mention before this the whole military uh, issue because I've said many times before and I think on my own podcast, literally I Immediately after Putin made his address to lawmakers in March of 2018, that his statement about Russia's military capability was probably the most fundamental statement we would hear in decades. And I, and I still stand by that because it changed the entire dynamic of the U.S.'s response globally to, and in terms of its perception of its military prowess and finally a realization that and i and i stand by this the u.s is decades behind russia's military capability now that changes the entire dynamic of what the united states thinks it's capable of doing or you know, or at least perceives what it's capable of doing and when you look at the u.s and, and how it's responded in theaters of conflict since that point North Korea is a great example of this, where the U.S. was threatening a preemptive strike. I mean, what people probably don't realize, the world at one point uh, was on the cusp of a major hot war revolving around North Korea. And it was only that the Russians essentially said, and the Chinese, if you launch a preemptive strike on North Korea, we'll not only destroy your entire fleet in the South China Sea, but we'll take additional uh, military action and the U.S. walked away from it. It's why the U.S. is walking away from conflicts in Ukraine. It's why the United States backed out at the last minute from launching a preemptive strike on Iran, because it knows the dynamic has changed. And we have the statement from Putin in 2018, and then he comes out at his national address uh, a few weeks ago. And he makes one line where he says, you know, I hope no one will think about crossing the red line with regards to Russia. We ourselves will determine in each case where that will be drawn. Then he makes reference to how 
Russia is constantly upgrading and improving its uh, armed forces, modern weapons, military equipment, nuclear capability in terms of missile technology. Now, obviously, you have to stack this against the fact. Probably not a lot of people realize the U.S. nuclear capability is decades old. It's totally unstable. They spend 10, 20, 30 billion and plus dollars a year just making sure that these missiles don't detonate in their silos. That's how dangerously uh, sort of or how dangerous this technology is. Compare that to, to Russian technology. And what does Putin mention in the recent uh, address? He talks about the avant-garde which is obviously hypersonic intercontinental missile system. He talks about the Perisbet combat laser systems. The United States got the fright of their lives because in Syria, the Russians decided to, to showcase to the Americans, we have this technology and we're going to let you see it. We're not even going to hide this technology. So their laser systems can reduce a tank to dust in the split second. And the Americans saw this happening. We're now seeing that uh, that the that, uh, the Russians going to do tests imminently of Sarmak. That's another intercontinental ballistic missile that the West refers to as Satan's missile Satan. because it operates at speeds in excess of 20 Mach. It has a maximum speed of 11,000 miles an hour. Oh, you can you combine that. They also have the Kinzel hypersonic missiles and and. The Americans have been given demonstrations of its capabilities and it scared the hell out of the military. This is why you can have all the blowhards and the hotheads inside the Beltway in the United States. But when it comes to the military, the military is going to say, excuse me, we're not, we're not dealing with this because we're sitting ducks. You know, they've, they have all these technologies. They have all these missiles. They've got the Zircon hypersonic missiles. They're also uh, operating on other modern combat systems. There's one called Poseidon. Never mind the S-400s or S-500s, Russia has S-700s. So whenever they say they're testing technology, it means they've already tested it. When they tell you they've got an S-400 or 500, it means they've got things two iterations ahead. So the U.S. can pretend that it's going to to, 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 you know, to uh, produce uh, or its own hypersonic missiles. And maybe eventually it will get there, but not at the moment. But when it thinks it's caught up with Russia, Russia's going to be three, four, five, six iterations ahead. And in many senses, it's a good job that it's that way around who has the, the military uh, technology and not the United States. But that changes the entire dynamic of the world. The U.S. is not going to go up on the world stage and actually threaten anyone in any meaningful capacity anymore. It certainly is not going to have World War Three with China or Russia because it knows full well. It launches uh, any preemptive strike on Russia. The Russian response will be to turn the entire United States into dust within half an hour. And the, and the Americans have no response. Just look at the American internal missile defense system. They're a joke, whether they're on the West Coast or the East Coast. They, you know, they, they are absolutely useless. The U.S. has no way of defending itself, despite you know, many people thinking to the contrary. But that dynamic is extremely important in focusing people's attention as to what are the perceived risks going forward. And this is why the United yeah. States now, and, and it happened during the, uh, during the Trump administration with, with, uh, and also carrying on within the Biden administration, where they're going on this charm offensive, where they're trying to convince allies in the world 
you don't want to work with China and Russia because they're malevolent nations or they're, you know, totalitarian dictatorships. They're having to change the whole emphasis because militarily they can't do anything. And also, of course, the United States economically or its financial system, the whole dollar is collapsing. So they've got very little or they're very limited in terms of their capability to enact any change as that empire is collapsing. But the military angle is extremely important. Yeah, yeah, very well said. Gentlemen, open, let's open it up for discussion. Any, yeah, like, I, who is next? I'm sorry. Uh, Velas and then Matthew. Uh, okay, go, go okay. ahead, Velas. Thanks. Yeah, a quick uh, quick input on, on uh, Paul's comments, which is beyond the, the, the military equipment factor and the capability factor, which I, I definitely appreciate after having worked in that industry, is just the operational factor. Um, sadly, in my own experience, the, the branches of the U.S. military have become so bureaucratic, even at the field level, that executing on orders to me is almost, almost impossible. And that's, that's the other element here is, is that many people have often um, gone back to the events of the Iraq war in 91 and pointed out that, you know, when U.S. forces were cut off from their command and control, they just... Uh, executed on their own based on the last orders they had, which is kind of how we tended to operate during World War II. But over the intervening years, what's happened is, is, a, is a, we, we've, for lack of a better word, we've become the enemy. We've now got such a layer of bureaucratic control on, on military forces that no one in the field is allowed to make their own decisions. They have to wait until they hear from somebody. So the other thing is, is in any kind of conflict, it becomes a function of speed. My question is, Is could U.S. forces even respond quickly enough if they had to? That's all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, yeah, there, there's two thoughts that, that entered my mind as you spoke and as Paul spoke. Uh, first, on, on the point you just brought up, uh, I remember reading um, a speech for a, by, by Douglas MacArthur describing uh, the difference between American and British uh, military tactics during World War II. And it was interesting that he, he made the point that the uh, American process was very different in the sense that it was much less formulistic. There was less of a sense of a, of a chain of command that you had to blindly be obedient to down all the way down the chain of command. And that there was a, a permission for, or even a desire for uh, flexibility on the ground because it was understood that a general sitting hundreds of miles uh, behind any type of action didn't know exactly what was going on on the front lines or on the ground. So they, they it was much more conducive to to creative thought, whereas the British uh, approach during that period was very formulaic. There, they, you know, they would even stop for tea time when, when there was like a firefight. <laughs> uh, but the, but it was it was much more premised on the idea of obedience. Um, now, after World War II, we've seen a complete we saw a complete overhaul with the growth of the U.S. military industrial complex, with the growth of the CIA, with the adoption of a lot of these um, more imperial tactics and paradigms um, of, of thinking about, you know, projecting power, projecting dominance onto the nation, nations of the world with this Anglo-American alliance. And, you know, like Churchill famously uh, said, you know, we need a world run by, by, Briti by British brains and American brawn. Um, so America increasingly became like this, uh, you know, this dumb the dumb giant deployed um, with its its own little, you know, inner oligarchs just s salivating over their new wealth of, uh, of the new American centuries to come. Um, but increasingly, you also had an idea of systems analysis. So things like game theory, I watched this documentary, you guys have probably all watched this called The Trap 
from the BBC by Adam Curtis. Mm. And it was a good documentary going through the growth of game theory, of systems analysis in not only po politics, but also and in e economic uh, policymaking, but also specifically in the military, such that, you know, the idea was computers were more efficient at thinking and planning than human beings were. And you had this uh, demonstrates incompetence after 10 years of Vietnam, where, you know, people like McNamara were, were running Vietnam strategy. And a lot of these, these joint chiefs of staff uh, figures were actually running strategy based upon game theory tactics. There was no goal orientation, just, you know, take the hill, keep the hill. But what do we do? What, what do we do after we take the hill? Just keep the hill <laughs> and increase your body count. You know, we'll give you points. It's like a video game. And I think increasingly that one of people look at current U.S. military strategy since especially the unipolar, you know, end of history age uh, arose with the collapse of the Soviet Union. They're like, is the U.S. insane? Why is it doing the things that it's been doing? It seems like it's it's only resulting in creating more instability for itself as well as the world. And uh, increasing the risk of an actual um, launch of, a, of of something of 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 a of a, of a nuclear war um, that wouldn't benefit anybody. And it's like, well, yeah, they kind of are crazy, but you got to understand what crazy is. It's not just like somebody just drunk at the fucking wheel. It's they, they've increasingly induced themselves to believe over decades yep. that uh, you can use computer models to generate scenarios that will then determine what you do in the real world, despite the fact that the real world has nothing to do with how you programmed your computer models. So you might, they might show up that statistically it might be probable that you could maybe win a, a limited thermonuclear war by, you know, destroying your, your enemy's uh, response capabilities. Maybe uh, your, your computer models say that, which increasingly we're finding that they, even those things don't, like MIT is producing computer, computer models saying like, the US would get annihilated by China in two minutes in the Pacific if they actually got into a fight. Don't Absolutely. do it. <laughs> but despite that, um, they're still going going for this this approach and, and it's it's finding their their AI uh, application, you know, uh, Pathfinder is a new AI program for the Arctic where they're they're saying like you listen to the head of US um, uh, Stratcom describing um, Pathfinder and, and the a the new role of AI in military affairs in the Arctic. It's and so it's it's weird. Was that? It's all bullshit marketing terms. It is, yes, yeah, marketing terms. But this guy seems to really believe it. He's like giddy, like a weird kid describing how the you know now we can make decisions you know infinitely faster and, and uh, than we ever could when human beings were in charge of determining what a what an attack was if an attack was happening. Now you know it worked well in Afghanistan. We see that. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's weird. It's creepy. But I think that there are, there are human elements, all, obviously, within the U.S. military that that are resisting and pushing back against that. And, and as Paul said, we've seen a lot of d displays of this pushback within the intelligence community, uh, within the military for many years. Uh, so it's not just like one homogenous view of things. Uh, there, there's a schism, you know, of, of people who realize that this is going to that they're going to be, you know, wiped off the face of the earth if they go along with this agenda or this paradigm. So that's there, too. Yep. Thank you for that. Uh, Velas, I think you had a, a follow up point. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, and Matt, Matthew, as always, you, you, there's a lot to unpack there <laughs> with everything you just said. I had two bullet points I wanted to follow up. The first was, is, is I think you really hit something on the head there, that this removal of the human element, um, quite frankly, in my opinion, we're seeing this across the board. They want to remove human decision-making from business. They want to remove human decision-making from society, whether it's elections or similar. 
because this is this is above the average person. You just don't need to be involved anymore, and especially in the military, um, because yes, the the AI and the algorithm assessments and the the tabletop exercises I used to be involved in back in the day. It's it's all about well, we really don't re want to rely on people with weapons in the field to make that kind of decision. And again, feeling like the outsider in the room when there's that much groupthink going on, I'm the person in the back row holding up a finger saying, but this is kind of like business. You're telling me your employees don't know how to do their jobs, so you want them to go through a binder. My first thought is, why aren't you training them better? That's, that's true of employees of a company or military in the field. Um, but to the, the topic we were talking about before, about command and control and, and large-scale military operations, because certainly uh, a number of our special forces teams are operating quite, quite effectively. But again, that's, that's true of business. You give me a small, nimble corporation, they're always going to be able to outperform the big, the big behemoth. But the biggest takeaway to me about the command and control in U.S. military operations was the expansion of what are known as the military co-commands. Now, for some of you on today's show, that... What happened was, is instead of relying on the Pentagon between the hours of, of 8 and 5 to make a decision, we started breaking down field operations, if you will, into what was called Eurocom. So that was the European Command. We had AFRICOM. We had the Special Operations Command in Florida and so on. And all of these co-commands were meant as someone who could advise uh, assets in the field, whether that's the Navy or Ground Forces or the Air Force or what have you, depending on what the situation was. But to me, again, the problem was not, I need more people who think like the Pentagon in the field. I need the field to be able to be entrusted to make the right decisions based on the circumstances they face. And that, that to me, is why we, we just can't. It's a function of execution, which I know, CJ, you were talking about yesterday, about what are the outcomes. So I yield, I yield the floor. Very good. Uh, before we move on to the next topic, uh, V, Ken, or Paul, anything uh, to follow up with? Yeah, I was going to throw something in there. Um, well, the complexity of what we're seeing, you know, what uh, Paul, uh, Vellis, Matthew all laid out, um, one of the more significant things I think as well is take a, take a, a screenshot of uh, the recent uh, climate change conference. And if you notice, there was only one individual in the Zoom conference who was wearing a mask. <laughs> and yes, we are talking about the demented Joe Biden. And I, I raise that point because if you take a look at what the United States, what Europe for the most part, what most of the West uh, under this American he hegemonic uh, empire is about, is the leadership as a whole, across the board, is absolutely incompetent. We are at a time when, when the world is changing, whether you're relying on the fourth turning philosophy, whether you're uh, historical cycles, etc. In Eurasia, in Asia itself, you have very legitimate and incompetent uh, leaders who are prepared for the transition we're going through right now. Even Erdogan, for all his megalomania, is a competent leader. But the spokespeople for America and for the West these days are AOC and Greta Thur Thornburg, or whatever her name is. That's who represents the West. Uh, it came out uh, just recently that America is now 30th in the world ranked in math. 
the education system has dumbed down uh, the population to the point that they can't even spell the word cat if they have both the C and the T, for those who remember the Terry Bradshaw joke. Bottom line is, generals and admirals in the, uh, in the U.S. military are uh, voted in by Congress. Thus, they are political animals. They are not military strategists. And this is another reason why you see incompetence uh, bringing in incompetence, bringing in incompetence. You take a look at the top. Uh, those behind the scenes who are running it, whether it's the corporations, whether it's the banking institutions, whether it's the deep state establishment, etc., they live under an old paradigm, and they think that they can just simply do what they did 20 years ago when the fall of the Soviet Union. They think they can do the same things over and over and expect the same results. It's not working that way, and they don't know any better, and we don't have somebody to step up like for for the sad reality we don't have that strong man hitler who can yank a nation that was completely devastated after the versailles treaty and bring them to be the largest the, the greatest power in europe in less than 10 years we don't have anybody like that and if we're going to rely upon algorithms and and uh robotics and that forget about it yeah. because the United States, because you take a look at its manufacturing, its productivity, its education, is that it's living in uh, a status quo mentality. And everything will be programmed for a status quo mentality, not for a future mentality. And because of that, uh, the United States has already lost. Most of Europe has already lost. Those that decide that they're going to step in at the last minute, well, the longer that they wait before they join Russia, Eurasia, uh, China, uh, the, the uh, Pacific Rim, the longer that they wait, the less uh, options they're going to have. And I think it's, it's uh, Paul and I have talked about this before. This is not going to end up in some nuclear war because the United States throws a tantrum and they've gotten, you know, they've gotten beat down like a dog. It's going to be much more uh, devastating in that people are going to wake up one day and the dollar is no longer going to be there. And the military has been uh, bled dry with these a Afghan and Iraqi wars. And all of a sudden they're going to recognize a world they no that no longer exists, or they're going to be living in a world that no longer exists and not recognize what has transpired, um, what they thought yesterday was. Yeah, absolutely. I want to say something real quick, Cesar, and we can move forward. I want to touch base on that AI uh, component. Uh, when most Americans think of AI, when most Westerners, when most people think of AI, they think of the Terminator movies, they think of um, um, war games, right? They think of this machine all of a sudden becomes, you know, they think of HAL 2000, you know, on Space Odyssey, right? They think of this machine that all of a sudden becomes self-aware and has a conscience and also the bullshit, right? Folks, let me explain something to you. Working in fintech, right? Working in fintech, I work with a lot of fintech guys. And one of the things that I'm, I'm always confronted with, they always throw around this marketing. Oh, we have an AI system. And AI, folks, it's a marketing term. There is no such thing as artificial intelligence, nor will there ever will be in your lifetime. When people say AI, it is a programmed algorithmic computer code that has the biases, the implicities, and the limitations of the programmer imbued directly into the source code itself. In other words, it's limited. 
input equals output. If you put in a question, if you pose a question for the quote-unquote AI to break down, it will only break down within a given parameter. It's not self-aware. It is not conscious. It is not a real intellect. So the, my question is, what is the West's obsession? What is this mutual mental masturbation that they're doing in the West when it comes to AI? <laughs> it's the same bullshit that the West was doing in the mid to late 90s with stealth technology. <laughs> We're going to put stealth on planes, and it's invisible to radar. Until somebody in, 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 in Albania shoots one out of the sky, or was Yugoslavia, Serbia, shoots one out of the sky, right? Yeah. Stealth technology. Marketing term. Fifth generation fighter. Marketing term. AI. Marketing term. So why the fuck? Let me explain to you why this is this, okay? In our government, 99.99% of these, these, these damn scumbags are lawyers. They're lawyers and people with humanities and sociology degrees. They're not engineers. They're not scientists. They're not real military tacticians and strategists. They're not any of that. So when they talk about AI, it's their crutch. Folks, let me explain something to you. One of the things I always do in, you know, when, I'm, when I'm, I'm, I'm in a meeting, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to people in New York or, or around the world or it's a conference call, one of the things I like to avoid is getting involved in a circle jerk, right? It's a circle jerk where people are sitting around and you believe your own BS. Folks, let me explain something to you. You are all, okay, the average American doesn't even realize it or not, and the average Westerner doesn't get it. You're all involved in a massive circle jerk. They're sitting around mentally masturbating each other. They have no solutions, no technology, no innovations, no depth whatsoever. But marketing terms and glib platitudes to make themselves feel superior. AI is making up for a lack thereof. The fact that you don't have a battlefield control system. The fact that they are lagging behind the East when it comes to scientific advancements. Right? The fact AI, AI, AI becomes a blanket term. Oh, we have an AI. We need to be careful. They got Elon Musk out there. We need to be careful about the demon of AI once we load it out. What demon of AI? What the hell is it going to do to you? Maybe it will work like the F-35 where it shoots itself. I have no idea. But understand, folks, it's a marketing term. It is what incompetent idiots do to make up for a lack thereof. And what are they lacking? Brains. Mm -hmm. Actually, yeah. Can I? Sorry, can I just jump in on the yeah, back Paul. of that? Well, yeah, Paul, Paul, and then I think Matthew has a point right after that. Okay, right, yeah. go, ahead, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, absolutely. V's absolutely right. There's a lot of this technology that just doesn't exist. I've said this all along. The idea that, you know, we're going to be living in AI hamster wheels, uh, like I've used that crude analogy, is just nonsense. We are so decades away, many iterations away from AI ever being a problem to humanity. But going back to the point of the military, the whole basis of the U.S. military, everything that governs it, is the military-industrial complex. That isn't actually interested per se in a war. It just wants to sell arms all over the world to make enormous profits. So it then goes to Europe. Russia's a threat. So you need to buy missile technology. We're going to stick our nuclear weapons on your soil. We're going to put American forces there. And we're going to spend all this money because the military-industrial complex wants to make loads of money. So it, there's no legitimate military reason to be anywhere <clears throat> so all you do is is just put people somewhere spend a whole bunch of money convince the world china is a problem so you can put new missile defense systems in japan or anywhere else you like. 
And it's all about accruing money from the military-industrial complex. So the military itself doesn't have any strategy because there's no reason to be there. There's no reason to be pointing missiles at Russia because Russia's not uh, a threat to the West. You know, a lot of people in the West think that Russia's the arch enemy. I mean, go to the Baltic republics. Loads of people are living constant fear that Russia's going to invade and it's going to, you know, reenact the old Soviet Union. That's the level of brainwashing. So that's a lot of thing that governs policy decisions. It's nothing to do with military strategy. It's just we need to we want people to buy technology we want to make enormous profits so you know i mean okay occasionally there is a strategy although there isn't a strategy so for example assad was a problem let's get assad out of the way um yanukovych is a problem in in uh, ukraine we need to remove him but but they don't have a strategy all it is is get rid of someone and then um well, what's the solution we don't have a solution so ukraine burns libya burns and because they don't have a strategy, there's no strategy, there's no input. That's the whole basis of the U.S. military. So the idea that the U.S. had to have any strategic capability of taking on a nation like Russia or China is a nonsense. And again, it feeds into what B said. It's all just psychology. It's all the idea that, oh, there's this technology. And you can guarantee there's people out there selling all this technology. Why? Because they want to make money. Does the technology work? Probably not. Is the technology even at that point of remotely looking like it's going to work? Absolutely not. But it doesn't matter because somebody somewhere is going to buy it. And if you can sell it, just sell it. I mean, look at the F-35, one and a half trillion dollars of total waste. I mean, it's I called it a flying tin can five or ten years ago. It's a farce. It's a joke. They might as well just abandon it and admit it was it was the most ridiculous uh, piece of technology that never can't, came. Can't do that, Paul. Because if, if the like I said before, Paul, if the oceans of the world were to dry up tomorrow, this stupid country will still be building submarines. Good. <laughs> but no, but that you're absolutely right. That's the point. It's all because they'll just keep pursuing it because someone makes money from it. So well, just keep throwing more and more money, throw another five hundred million dollars uh, or billion dollars or whatever it might be, because we'll fix it tomorrow. Not someone sat there going, actually, this is pointless. Why are we spending this money? And that's the point. The military has no control over anything because it's the military-industrial complex that controls it all because it just wants to sell armaments. It wants to sell weapons. It has to feed fear to people in the world because that means then they'll be terrified enough to buy this technology and the military-industrial complex profits. Okay, a lot of these places that buy it don't actually buy because the Americans effectively pay for it. But there you go. That's back to my original point. When are Americans going to wake up and go, you spent $35 trillion on pointless wars. Why didn't you spend the money on our country? Why didn't you have the best education system, health service, have all the best technology and innovation? All this money could have been spent to better the lives of the American people. And I sit there going, why? I mean, I've had this question in my head for, for 30 years. Why, why don't we see Americans go asking this question? And I still don't see people asking the obvious question. Why are you spending all this money when you could be spending it on us? But that shows the extent of how you can convince people of something, whether it's domestically or internationally. And it's purely not based on any military strategic reason. It's just spending money for the sake of spending money so someone can line their pockets with huge amounts of money. Uh, thank you. Uh, Matthew, go ahead, please. Yeah, there was a, uh, a this, this is such an important, fruitful question that I really wanted it to just sit 
a little bit in the minds of the viewers uh, listening right now. This idea that, I mean, the way that V raised the issue, the ontological issue of the impossibility of AI ever happening as it is being uh, described. Now, obviously, there is a tech of, of algorithms that are very interesting that have good possible applications in a, in a healthy society that we might call AI, but the very term AI has a lot of ignorance attached to it. And there's an ontological impossibility that I think has to be explored a little bit because as V said, um, what you put in is, you, you, the, we, there's an idea of the whole being either the sum of parts or more than the sum of parts. You can't have both. Um, when you have a new idea being generated um, as a discovery, a eureka, it's happening in the mind of a person, a subjective person who's looking at data, who has, um, who has been thinking about and, and, and thinking about the relationships of the data and, and trying to generate a hypothesis of what is organizing the data. Now you can find two people who have the same data, the same knowledge. And I was just reading with a, a, a study group uh, last night, the readings of Max Planck, who wrote a, 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 an essay called The Philosophy of Physics. And he's going through the, this, this, uh, question of well, what what is it about him that allowed him to make the discoveries into the quantum of action um, at the end of the last century and nobody else who had the same info and he gives the example of Kepler in at the end of in the last chapter of the of the essay and he's describing well look at Kepler you know he had bad eyesight he had the same data that Tycho Brahe had Tycho Brahe was in the you know 1601 he dies but he was like a, a rich astronomer he had the best data in the world he worked Kepler worked for him um, they had the same knowledge of mathematics, of astronomy, but but Tycho, his model, the thing that made him famous, of of the thing describing a planetary motion, his model had, you know, all the the planets going around the sun, but the sun was going around the Earth, so he had the Earth still in the stationary in the middle, and everything moved that way. Now the thing about Tycho Brahe's model is it was really famous, and it really worked. Like it was, it was, it it amounted to, um. It accounted for observational data within a high degree of error, like, uh, sorry, a low degree of error. It was really, really precise and it could forecast to a certain degree um, linear extrapolations that were useful for astrology and things like that. Kepler saw that that was ultimately maybe kind of pretty and interesting looking, but absurd. Like, why would the universe have been created that way? It's, it's just so, it requires so many mathematical absurdities because, because Tycho Brahe couldn't break from certain fundamental assumptions that he planted into his model uh, of perfect circles, of mathematical equants, of things like that. And Kepler had a deeper faith in a reasonable, beautiful creation that was that we were in harmony with, that the mind could come to know. And it was because of that faith that the same the same facts resulted in two different results from the two minds, where Kepler actually discovered three planetary laws of of, of motion. Um, by breaking from a lot of the core assumptions. Today, I think since, especially the, you know, the mid 20th century with the, the advent of systems analysis, cybernetics, people like John von Neumann, who I'm, I'm reading right now, uh, was the, the sort of founder of this. This gave birth to all of the, the, the theory of how do you manage closed systems uh, that was adopted by the OECD, that was adopted by NATO in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, that was infused into our educational systems and infused into our military planning. And this is what gave birth, if you read a lot of the writings of the Great Reset crowd, the Green New Deal crowd, these technocrats, they're all using systems analysis. They're all using this idea of, of using this language 
Um, which of course, you know, human beings are a system. Yes. But is it a closed system? Is it a system obedient to the laws of entropy of the second law of thermodynamics where everything is just ultimately running down and, and all we can do is manage the, the diminishing rates of returns by a, you know, a scientific priesthood, uh, that stays above the, 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 the shadow world that all of the, the masses of slaves have to live in. Well, you know, Klaus Schwab might think so, and so might Bill Gates, but I think that reality shows us that every human being, like Kepler wasn't part of the master elite class, you know, but neither was Max Planck, but they were able to um, trump, to, to mentally trump because of their faith in a, an abiding uh, principled love of truth. They're, they were able to make discoveries into the universal laws of creation and and share them with other human beings. They weren't part of the, the higher bloodlines. So I think that the 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 wannabe master class today they 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 despise me. I think they might be a little even jealous of the 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 fact that there's tons of abundant evidence throughout history that their slaves actually have greater creative fortitude and capacity than they do because they get decadent living in their system of privilege for too long. Um, just you know, they're all of their creativity is just perverted perverted to just defend their system. Yep. You know, generation after generation, they get stupider and stupider. Just look at Prince Prince Charles today compared to the previous generation of oligarchs. The guy is really he talks to plants and stuff, you know, um, like they're they're <laughs> they, they get dumber. They, and and I think that you see uh, increasingly a lot. We should get hope out of that because the, the Eurasian, the, the, the Eurasian partnership, the multipolar alliance is increasingly founded upon an understanding that human beings are a creature of creative reason. And that the political economic architecture that we create for ourselves has to be in obedience with that fact scientifically. And that that really does characterize the behavior and strategizing militarily as well as economically of the Belt and Road and, and everything else. Matthew, thank for that. And if it's okay, uh, I think that kicks off our topic too, which is the multipolar open system updates versus closed system, the Malthusian uh, green mass suicide. Um, yeah. is, is that kind of like the direction you were going, going with it in terms of uh, the topic I think that's that's listed and 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 obviously yeah. if any of our good Matthew, yeah, I, I didn't have an agenda to do that, but it worked out pretty well. Eh? Um, it, it, it did. It really yeah. right the topic too. So uh, just want to open it up for discussion at this point. Um, if any of our of our other guests panelists wanted to uh, contribute to that, please. Sure. Well, I, I could I could say maybe one thirty second thing on on that. Yeah, the the um, a lot of people might not know. Um, or they might not make the connection between the Green New Deal today and this whole Great Reset thing, which is trying to use the excuse of COVID plus the climate crisis as ultimately these are two imaginary fake crises. There, there are real crises that we should be afraid of, but most people's priorities are so inverted and, and out of whack that they don't know what they should be afraid of. And they're afraid of things that they shouldn't be afraid of. Uh, so it's a bit, you know, they're, they're mushy. But ultimately, this is a revival of a very old and obsolete uh, theory of society that was originally sort of, I guess, promulgated by a British East India Company economist who worked for the British Haleybury School named Thomas Malthus, uh, a nominal reverend or person um, in, you know, 1799. And basically, you know, this guy had a great innovation that, uh, you know, we live in a closed system. And because we live in a closed system, all resources are finite. And, and as we have more people growing geometrically and, and, and food uh, agriculture grows arithmetically, we always will have a increasing um, diminishing rate of returns into the, into the system to keep it afloat such that it will reach a breaking point and collapse unless the, gov the, 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 uh, the governments 
adopt scientific management of reducing population and, and, and malt this goes through, you know, we've got tools that nature gave us like wars and disease. We can, you know, encourage the, the return of the plague and other things. And, and uh, we can encourage wars to just help, help call the population in, uh, in equilibrium. And, and, it, you know, throughout the 19th century, that was proven wrong. Like it was really because of largely the American systems uh, growth, you know, and demonstration that, you know, through scientific and technological progress and giving kids the opportunity to to find their talents to increase the division of labor. You can increase people's ability to discover things that they couldn't have known that they had a, a passion or a talent for in engineering or, you know, whatever else. As you as you apply new technologies, you're increasing the complexity and the options people have to find things within themselves. You know, I, I would love to be a nuclear uh, fusion uh, physicist, maybe, but I can't have that because fusion was intentionally destroyed by the the return of the the Malthusian agenda in the 19 early 1970s when a lot of these these groups basically you know over the deaths the dead bodies of JFK of Martin Luther King of Bobby Kennedy and Enrico Mattei in Italy and many others they basically said okay e people thought that Malthus was wrong but actually Malthus was right um and they said to prove it let's just let's just stop funding all of the advanced tech, uh, you know, domains of nuclear fusion tech, which immediately saw mass cancellations of funding that wouldn't give the scientists the ability to build the prototypes needed to even test their theories. So it just like slowly died off by attrition. Uh, Apollo programs were canceled by 1973 and the, the, the spaceships were just retired. So we couldn't even put a toaster back on the moon. Canada's, you know, did it first when when we destroyed all of our Avro arrows that we talked about last uh, last show, our, our supersonic jets. So they they basically just they took they they cut off our our legs and told us to run the race, and then no they knew that people would just get demoralized and ultimately lose faith in the idea of humanity and scientific and technological progress, um, by virtue of just having no success for so many years to the point that today now you got a big misanthropy where people are becoming very susceptible to this, you know, maybe we are too much. Maybe, maybe the, our problems are that we're just too many people, too many mouths. And maybe, maybe we do need some form of, you know, new decarbonization strategy to eliminate all carbon from the earth. Like, <laughs> like it's, it's just so it's, it's mm. suicidal and people are acquiescing because of this whole problem. They don't know what Malthus was. They don't know why Malthus was, was refuted and they don't know how he was revived in this nasty zombie, like green new deal way. Gotcha. Great. Uh, Paul, Ken, V, any Velas, anyone jump into that? Yeah, you know, uh, I, I love uh, speaking about the worldly philosophers. That was actually the book that got me really into economics. Um, and in the book, they would compare one uh, economist, philosopher, with another. Malthus was uh, coupled with Ricardo. And Ricardo, of course, was one who spoke upon that innovation and technology, if allowed to progress, would be able to solve all the problems that Malthus was trying to push. The uh, thing about the multipolar uh, world, and this is what really um, gets a lot of people's goats, is America has pushed this, you know, democratize the world philosophy. But the world is multipolar. In the Middle East, the populations are more than happy to follow Islam, both as a religion and as a governmental organization. 
Russia, from its very inception, the people have demanded a strong man, not a dictator necessarily, but an authoritarian who's going to uh, direct them on what to do. China, for 5,000 years, has been imperialistic. And so whether it's the CCP or an emperor who has uh, complete power, that has been the Chinese way. The Western, uh, you know, if you think about it, even in most of Europe, they had authoritarians. They tried to keep the monarchies and uh, the empires going for, you know, up until the end of the night, you know, the end of World War One. The United States, on the other hand, uh, was an experiment. And the experiment worked and it didn't work in certain ways. Uh, the most important thing is that all of a sudden, rather than a strong man, you rely on the people to uh, check its government and to provide uh, the foundation of, of government. But most people are lazy. Most people are apathetic. Uh, most people will just sit and let them, let them over time give up their rights. What you said about the 1970s, you know, uh, the name that comes up, of course, is Zygmunt Brzezinski and the Grand Chessboard. And there were two th important things that uh, came out of significance uh, from Brzezinski. One, he laid out the, the course that Eurasia is the center of global power. It always has been. Go back to the time of uh, Rome. Really, the the one disputed area that was always uh, at, at, at odds was Anatolia which was on the cusp of Eurasia right there. Um, then, of course, you have Brzezinski, who resurrected uh, technocracy. And if you go back to the 30s, technocracy came out uh, during the Great Depression the same way that Steinbeck wrote about the rise of communism. You know, people were looking for something because they felt that capitalism had failed. Capitalism didn't fail. Crony capitalism failed as we saw in the 1920s. But what has, what has transpired that has really, in the United States, brought about the demise? Technocracy believes that uh, money or a medium of exchange should be energy. Well, by the time we got to 1973, they were able to do the first step of that. That's why it was called the petrodollar. Money was tied to oil. Secondly, you get the uh the what they're trying to do now carbon credits that's going to be what they want as the future form of medium of exchange the end result of technocracy and of course just like uh what we saw during this whole pandemic bs trust the science trust the experts trust this well that's technocracy in a nutshell you are ruled by professionals and experts despite the fact that these professionals and experts um, are not experts at anything. They just have titles. The multipolar world, we're starting to see this in Europe. Um, after, in the 1970s, they started integrating a lot of refugees or a lot of uh, different individuals, primarily from the Middle East. And as uh, Paul and I talked about, and you all probably know about it, there is a growing uh, concern in Paris of a civil war where people are ready to have the military come in and, and eradicate uh, the Islamic uh, menace that has pretty much diluted 
uh, Parisian society and culture. Multipolar world is where cultures remain in their own bailiwick. They don't integrate because most of these cultures do not have the same mentality as what happened uh, during the immigration in the United States where, pe where they're leaving something they don't want and they're coming to a new place where they do want. Instead, over the last hundred years, they've been ripped from their, from their world or they've moved from their world, but they don't want to become something new. They don't want to assimilate. So what end ends up has to happen is what I believe China, what I believe uh, the Eurasian Economic Union, what we're seeing in the East and in Eurasia is we uh, are the leadership and the organizations want peoples and cultures to remain the same. We're not trying to democratize you. We're not trying to change you. We're not trying to force you into something you're not. But with that said, we want to have the partnership of trade in your own currency, not in something that they force on somebody else. And you build and grow. And if you want our aid to go ahead and expand and grow, we will bring help you with the technology, with the labor, etc. But the forced, um, the forced colonialism that really has been the uh, part and parcel of the West is something that the new future uh, multipolar world is is going to try to avoid at all costs. And if uh, if individual nations stayed hegemonic and worked together. Uh, as partners, not as adversaries, or as um, uh, ad, uh, not as adversaries, and not as uh, foreseen as enemies, but as partners. Even recognizing that some are going to grow and improve faster than others, that is where we're going to see the world really come together and uh, and grow and find a better future. Because the fact of the matter is, unless you have some way to reprogram every single human being on earth there will always be uh that uh, culture clash whether it's uh islam christianity um you know we even see it saw it during the uh middle ages or past post-renaissance hundred years war uh, roman catholicism versus protestantism you cannot force people into something that they don't want to do because in the end, all you're going to do really is uh, see the end of your own empire by your internal struggle. Yep, yep. Thank you for that, Ken. Uh, B or Velas, before we jump on to the to the next topic, uh, anything to to add to that? Okay, uh, let's let's shift gears a little bit, and I'd like to switch, uh, Paul. If you could uh, kick off this topic, it's, and this is in regards to uh, what Ken kind of alluded to, and that is the uh, Eurasian. Uh, access and and the thought that Europe is still under control by Washington uh, via the Atlanticist in in Europe. So if you could kick that topic off uh, for us, that would be great. And maybe we can we can tie in a little bit with uh, Matthew's regime change uh, back in play with Newland and also Samantha Power. So so go for it, Paul. Yeah, I think. Well, I'll come on to what the real birth of what is the reset. Not I mean, this this World Economic Forum Great Reset makes great. Uh, copy for the old media but anyone who knows anything about Davos knows that in all the decades Davos has existed it's 
It's done nothing. It's never, not one single major policy decision has ever come out of it that ever gets enacted. It's just a, a bunch of people who people think they control the world and the people at Davos don't control the world. And they all sit there and they all pontificate and they all, you know, do whatever they do and they all go home and nothing happens. So it's just, and just because somebody comes out with a statement, that, oh, you know, about the Great Reset, they, they, they just hear the word reset and go, oh, that must be the reset. Well, the reset isn't, that is not the reset. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. I have a big advantage with regards to the reset. What the real reset is, because I know personally know the people who were the architects of the reset. They're just regular people who back in the late 90s and early 2000s were visionaries who knew the dollar system was going to collapse, knew the West was unsustainable, and basically went to the Chinese and the Russians and said, this is unsustainable. You need to start making preparations and, and changes uh, according on the basis that the dollar is going, US hegemony is going to collapse, the Western financial system is totally unsustainable, and therefore you have to start to go, okay, what are we going to do? So from a Chinese perspective, they sat there and went, okay, we can resurrect the old Silk Road. The One Belt, One Road becomes the Belt Road Initiative. The multipolar world, that's a solution where we start to engage with nations and make them realize that the old system, the unipolar world, which Putin rightly said, and it's very important, this never existed. All this one world governance stuff is nonsense. It was dead in the water before it ever took off. That's just another myth that populates through the old media as that it's a reality. It's not a reality. But the point is that in the basis of these discussions, then it was, okay, what can we do internally? How do we have to start reforming things internally? Because we've got to prepare for the fact that if if US Germany ends, the US dollar collapses, then you know, how are we going to grow and stimulate our own economic growth? I mean, China's a great example where it's now rotating its economy away from being an exporter of cheap goods to an importer. And it's going to, and obviously it's evolving its own internal export markets on a technological basis then the issue is okay what replaces the dollar you know, the dollar effectively we don't want the global reserve world reserve currency there's no need to have it in the future so we want to return to sound money that's why china has forty thousand tons of gold that's why russia has forty thousand tons of gold and iran has huge amounts of can't be precise but it's in excess of twenty thousand tons of gold what a surprise those three nations have enormous gold reserves. The point is, that's the, that's the pillar and foundation of how you're going to have a financial system that has stability. Okay, so if you're going to replace the dollar system, what is going to take its place? So one, one development of that, and there's all this big fear of what central bank digital currencies mean, it's a control mechanism. It's absolutely no difference. You already have a digital bank account. You can already be surveilled. They can shut your, you off from your digital bank account now if they want to. They can seize your assets if they want to. It doesn't happen, and it's not going to happen on that basis in the future. Again, it's another central bank digital currency. Oh, it's a method of control. China's digital yuan, I'm not going to go into masses of details about it, is one of the platforms where China can internationalize its currency, not become a world reserve currency. It means you can put digital yuan hubs all over the world. You can trade in it, 
Why? It's much more efficient. It's much more cost effective. And it will actually alone by adopting these, uh, like the digital yuan, it will imp- it grow three, four, five, six, seven percent to global GDP just on that basis alone because of all the inefficiencies in, in the current finance, how the current financial and payment systems operate. They're farcical. So that's another example. The other thing is, okay, how do you start to build out relationships in, in this new world? So all these discussions and a whole bunch of other things happened in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And the people concerned, actually, someone, one of them got in touch with me back in 2009 and started to have discussions about it, told me a whole bunch of things that in the last decade, every single one of them has happened. And there's hundreds of these things, really minute, small details about you'll see this happen, this happen. Thus far, everything's happening the way it was explained to me. Okay. It's as, and I've said this and V mentioned the point, it's event driven. It's not time driven because certain things happen based on other events happening as a consequence. So the multipolar world has been in creation for, for that long. So eventually, come 2008, that was when the, the, the thought had to go down on the accelerator because up to that point, there was less concern. Okay, 2008 was, was visible. I remember working in the banking system in 2006. And sitting in a meeting going, it's all over. The Western financial system is going to collapse. This is unsustainable, wrote to Western government, who completely ignored it. 2008 happened. But that was a big turning point for the Chinese and the Russians because they realized that, okay, what we were told a decade before is now really a reality. Okay, the way the West has tried to save the financial system has failed, and now it's completely collapsing a decade later. And contrary to this idea, they're collapsing everything deliberately. They're not. Because if they wanted to do that, they'd have done it in 2008. But no, they kept tried to keep it going. You get to 2021. And it's now in the, in the last dying embers of its existence. And what has been the big cause of this? Accelerated the collapse, the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. People believe it's engineered. Well, if you want to engineer your own demise, They've done a great way of doing that because the inevitable <laughs> consequences of the pandemic is it's causing the and accelerating the collapse because the problem stopped being inside Wall Street and the bank. It actually went from there into Main Street. Once it went into Main Street, it's game over for them because now you're seeing inflation everywhere. They cannot contain the problem they created because they made the wrong decisions in 2008. But because they made the wrong decisions, then the Chinese and the Russians started going, okay, we need to put our foot on the accelerator. Hence, we saw BRICS, hence the AIIB. Hence, you started to see the sort of embryonic Belt and Road Initiative. You started to see in, in the coming years, China creating SIPs, Russia, MIA, the SPFS. Uh, China and Russia buying as enormous amounts of gold but hiding it from the world. One example of this, for a two-and-a-half-year period in 2012, Every single month, 1,000 tons of gold headed from the West to China and Hong Kong. And there's, so when you see all these people quoting all these, this gold that's moving around the world, that's, they're only telling you what's in the transparent markets. There's an entire opaque market that no one knows about. It never gets discussed. And that's where the business end of gold operations happens. Not exclusively, it happens also in silver. 
But this is what the birth of this process was, why we've seen this acceleration. And look at what happened in 2014. The Ukraine Maidan was one of the biggest disasters the United States ever made. Because in the immediate aftermath of that, within months, China and Russia signed what's called the Holy Grail energy deal for the power of Siberia gas line. Why do we think that happened? Precisely because of what the United States did in terms of Ukraine. That was a big trigger in this event-driven scenario where they went, hang on, now we really do see this is a major serious problem. To a lesser extent, what happened in the Arab Spring was part of this problem. The Syria obviously was part of this problem. But when it started to, to come down on the doorstep of Russia, it changed attitude. It actually went a long way to drawing China and Russia together. And the relationship China and Russia has now is unprecedented in modern history. No two nations have that level of cooperation, understanding they're completely joined at the hip in terms of all foreign policy. Where China is, Russia is. Wherever Russia is, China is. And this is the one thing the United States finally realized in 2018 during the Trump administration why and why they went completely <clears throat> loopy with regards to China was because they suddenly went, hang on, why is it everywhere we look in the world, China and Russia are there? They're in Central America. They're in South America. They're in Africa. They're in Europe. They're in Southeast Asia. They're everywhere. Why, why do we not know about this? Staggeringly enough, through their arrogance, ignorance, and stupidity, they didn't see what's been going on for the last 20 years. I mean, it's like the WTO. The WTO move was not China abusing the United States. It was the United States going, we can export our manufacturing base because we can make enormous profits through through because of obviously cost efficiencies in the labor market in China. China sat there and went, well, not only if you let us into the WTO, but thanks very much for exporting your manufacturing base because based on the discussions we've had from in terms of the reset, you're actually saving us a, probably a decade or two of that progress and development because you're already putting you're already putting your manufacturing base, you're basically destroying your own economic uh, prosperity eventually inside the United States, which was always going to happen. So rather than blaming China for this, blame the Americans. The Americans, the one who willfully sold the American people down the river economically. And China just sat there rubbing their hands going, well, we can't believe that that's stupid, but thanks very much, you. You've really helped us in terms of our own development. And of course, what we've seen in the last 20 years and people, whether they like it or not, and this isn't about liking China or disliking it. Progress China's made in the last 20 years is unprecedented. Yep. And anyone who's ever been to China, anyone who's done, if you can go, go, go and see for yourself what's happened there, because the transformation is incredible. But part of the problem the United States made is they completely misjudged the Chinese mentality that they were never going to want to be westernized. They, they, and why would they? Because their attitude is, we don't want to turn you into a satellite of China. Don't try and westernize us. So they took advantage of the situation. And yes, they have made enormous strides. And yes, at one point, they did steal all the technology. But now the technological leaders, and they're not stealing the technology anymore. And the West is furious about this and why they want to try and suppress the likes of Huawei. And the reason is very simple, because they don't they want all the NSA technology or all the NSA ability to spy 
that's embedded in the current technology to remain in place. If Huawei gets a market share, they can't spy on their own allies anymore. That's the reason why they, they want to try and crush Huawei. And if you want to talk about a World War Three now, the World War Three now is a technological war between the ascendancy, not just of China, but Southeast Asia, and how they're technologically stealing a march. And the United States principally is trying to do everything to prevent that because they know technology is the future. No, not a technocracy or any of that stuff. Technology is the future. That's going to be the big driver for the next 100 years and, and longer. And the United States knows that it's miles behind and it wants to do everything to try and prevent China and the Southeast Asia maintaining that ascendancy. They're not going to achieve that objective. And even though they're doing everything to try and pre to prevent that ascendancy, and that was the whole basis of their attack on Huawei. So they came out with all this spurious nonsense as to what that China was trying to do, when in fact they're the ones spying on all their allies with NSA technology embedded in in every bit of technology we use, and that's been the case for, for decades. And we could talk for weeks about this, but I'll stop. Yeah. Paul, thank you for that. And uh, Matthew, you have some commentary, please. Yeah, I was just reminded of a, <clears throat> of a, a, a short story that was written by Jonathan Swift um, in the 1700s. Uh, it was it was a really funny short story called the Battle of the Books, uh, the story of the the battle that took place in St. Paul's Library um, between the ancients and the moderns. And you know he's basically intervening on a lot of the the Enlightenment contemporary thinkers of his time who would all try to basically do kind of like what the woke crowd is doing today with critical theory of just saying like we don't want to study dead white European males anymore. We want to just study relevant new thinkers. And uh, that was going on in his time, you know, and people were saying, oh, we don't need to study Homer. We don't need to study Plato or or any of those obsolete uh, Aeschylus. That's that's the old thinking. Now we're in the new age of the Enlightenment and we, we just need new fashionable, uh, you know, theories. And uh, and he intervenes on this whole process. He himself, Swift, situates himself uh, within uh, the deeper classical traditions. Um, <clears throat> so he's not saying, you know we should just go back in time to the past, but he's saying that there's something you're throwing out here that is very valuable and you're just, you're, you're doing yourself a disservice and all of humanity. That's going to be influenced by your thoughts of what the human mind is. And he, and he puts like, you know, Descartes, uh, Newton, a lot of these, these moderns, um, into, into one camp and they're just going to war, picking a war with the, the ancients and the ancients, he, he has the, he has like Homer representing one of the books, uh, telling them like, well, you're spending all of your time, uh, trying to, to carve down our mountains so that we could be on the same level. But why don't you just make your mountain higher? Why don't you just have higher standards of quality in your thinking and just raise to our level? Like, we'll help you. And uh, they're just like hammering away, trying to bring them all, bring the ancients down by mockery. And that was one of the big things going on. There was a lot of mockery. Um, and that's usually how somebody who has a very weak argument tries to uh, win or win over an audience is through sophistry and mockery, not actually dealing with the content of the discussion which is where you get people today often, you know, in, in the habit of, of laughing at people who might doubt the IPC's consensus on, you know, man-made global warming or the, the World Health Organization's consensus view on, uh, uh, you know, COVID-19 being the existential fraud. And they laugh it away, but they don't actually deal with the content of what's being said. Um, so I think that when you look at what is China tapping into, what is Russia tapping into right now, they've struck the balance because they're, 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 is a resolution to the problem of seeming paradoxes that a computer thinker cannot, if you think like a computer, you cannot resolve certain paradoxical realities 
that are easily resolvable if you think like a human. Uh, like, for example, how could you have a balance of equality with uh, respecting the diversity of of a system, right? And and Ken brought up the uh, the issue of of the uh, of of the fact that we've made cultures. How do you both coexist as one humanity, working together while at the same time respecting the differences of each of the parts, right? You, it's be, it's by virtue of of acting on what is universal about humanity. We all are going to die. We all have hopes for a better world for our kids. You know, we we all have certain physical needs, like whether you're Muslim, Jew, or Christian or atheist. You need water. Like you need to have access to water and food. And if you if you make your decisions and and economically based upon improving those uh, access to to water and and making those things better, then you can win the trust and have a climate of of respect for each other's differences and not just go to war like we saw with the Hundred Years War. Or the same thing economically. Um, people talk about you know what type of financial mechanism will uh, will be right for uh, for the banking system and you know the the unipolarists we know what they want it's it's a one world currency they just want to homogenize the world into like one easily controlled system uh china you know it does i think it it, it doesn't really matter whether you have a whole global currency based on digital yuan uh, or or plastic I, it doesn't matter be, in a sense and i, I digital yuan look like the, the way things are going here but really, it's it's that China has recognized that there's physical economic realities underlying human, you know, the eight, nine billion, soon nine, 10 billion human lives. There's physical realities that have to be met by ideas put into action in reality, right, in time and space. And uh, and whatever you, whatever mechanism, it's a, you have a lot of options for how, what type of mechanism will be put online through your central banking system through the financial system, um, it, there's a lot of variability that you can play with. The point is you have to make it happen. You have to, whatever you do, you have to improve the quality of, of lives of people, reduce their suffering, reduce their scarcity. And you do that by encouraging big, big long-term low interest infrastructure projects that meet objectively, scientifically truthful need. And and you give people an environment to make it happen because you don't know what the answers will be. Like individuals, entrepreneurs will have to come up and make discoveries along the way to make a project happen. Um, whether it's the move south, water, north, or whether it's you know space exploration or, or lunar mining or whatever, you don't know what the how you're going to get there, but you know you got to get there. So you create a climate and you make it conducive for that to happen. Whatever financial mechanism you you pick. It's got to do that. And, and it's, again, philosophically rooted in this idea of balancing the one, the many, the change, the no change. Like core philosophical concepts are, are really understood by the intelligentsia of China and Russia right now. Not at all understood by the West. Really, we've been deprived of this by those controlling the educational environments that we were, we were processed through. So a lot of the things we should have come, as, come, come to as concepts much earlier on, we've been deprived of and we have to do a lot more. I guess just work, you know, just read Plato. Uh, a lot of these concepts become very, they slap you in the face when you look at, read through some of these dialogues and work them out. It's, it's not, not hard to, re to reconcile freedom and duty, freedom and law. You know, how does the universe exist as a place where there are laws, but also create a flexibility and fluidity? How do those two seemingly opposing things coexist? Well, they do, but you got to think about it. Yep, very well said. I uh, also want to thank uh, Velas, who needs to depart from our roundtable discussion. So, Velas, thank you for uh, your contributions today, and I know our audience appreciate it as well.
Yep. And he's, he's out. All right. Uh, good deal. So um, let's see here. V or Ken, anything to, to add to that or, or Paul, anything else that you would like to share regarding the, the topic? I think the only thing I would add is, uh, you know, when it comes to prog- progress, one of the more interesting things is, is those who have, have uh, either a desire for power, especially power over individuals, or to hold on to what we currently have, they take nature, they take science, they take finance, and corrupt it to try to then uh, make sure that it supports them, not goes with the flow of the natural course of of markets, the invisible hand, et cetera. Uh, The biggest thing I have seen, and one of the reasons I think why the United States has completely fallen behind when it comes to uh, progress, is that the uh, the scientific model is completely turned upside down. You know, originally you make an observation, you have a thought, you uh, you observe some more, you experiment, you test, you take the pros and cons, and you see if it uh, if what your thesis is or your theorem uh, works every time in every single situation or experiment. Well, what they do today is those in power have a conclusion, and then they work backwards and they throw out anything that. Uh, uh, opposes their conclusion when it comes to science. Take a look at the pandemic uh, or, or uh, man-made global warming. The science is done. You can't question it. Well, nobody's even questioned it from the beginning. And the vilification, criticism, uh, you know, racial you know, remarks about uh, about personal remarks about the individual, but they never uh, debate the actual facts because they cannot have uh, the conclusion they want and the narrative that they want to dissolve in front of them. This is the West in a nutshell. And when you see what's going on uh, taking digital currency uh, with China going forward, is they've taken, they've, they've observed what digital currencies have done, what the blockchain has done now for more than a decade. Uh, initially, they were against it because it was an anathema, a potential anathema to the policies that they wanted to do. However, by taking observations over the last decade, they said, ah, this is a way, uh, a benefit, not only to uh, get out from under the thumb of, of SWIFT and, and U.S. hegemony, but also as a means to progress and provide on the Silk Road. Uh, for people as a whole, uh, quicker transactions, uh, getting rid of the bureaucracy and the red tape. So now they're in the process of taking a digital currency, testing it, and uh, doing the pros and cons and figuring out what needs to be done. Is it going to be accepted? Is this something? And they're doing it in a way that protects the consumer by saying, we're not getting rid of the uh, paper you want. It's going to be a joint uh, concept because most of the digital uh, transactions uh, besides the voluntary ones that are going to be done by the people, it's going to be the international so that you can go ahead and make transactions quick. We see the supply chains and what's going on in California uh, where 
you know, the bureaucracy and the red tape is so great that ships are just sailing back and forth. They can't get into ports fast enough. So, so the the progress that's being done in, in the East, I see, is sticking to the tried and true models of how you, uh, you, you know, you have a problem, you test out, find the best solution, and you move forward. In the, in the West here, there is a conclusion of what, a narrative of what they want, and they discount anything that uh, would oppose their narrative. And because of that, this is one of the biggest reasons why uh, I see the acceleration of the uh, fall of the Western Empire and the American Empire, and very quick rise thanks to uh, the technology and communications that we're seeing in the East. Yeah, Th thank you for that, uh, Ken. Appreciate it. Uh, Actually, uh, CJ, just a point, Ken, yeah. and and obviously Matthews talked about this. The the whole problem, that, yeah, fundamentally, the problem in the West relates to our education system and how. And Ken made the point. We, we're, we're geared to have a conclusion and then we work backwards. So something happens, just really, but it's not trivial in terms of the consequences. But a trivial example is, and everyone in the West buys this, you know, something happens somewhere in the world, the Russians did it, the Chinese did it, and most people in the West just go, oh, yes, of course they did it because we're being told they did it. They're, you know, that's one of the fundamental bases of why. The Western education system fails, but also because they've geared the, the education system. And the UK's, I mean, I can't speak for for, uh, for the United States, and I'm not going to try to. But what I do know in the in in the UK education system, and I've made this comment: we have the most paper qualified nation ever, but we have the most uneducated nation in the, in the process. I'm not trying to denigrate people who who have degrees. I mean, I went through the whole university process. I was a an academic, so I, I, I'm not saying that from a position of, 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 of sort of sort of inverted educational snobbery. My point is, it failed. So what we did is we stopped educating people, and the consequence when you do that is when when the the society needs to keep growing and evolving, which the West has failed to do for decades. We didn't have the people who had the 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 academic capability. To, to implement change. And it's not all about technology. It's not all about science. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm an ex-scientist. I mean, I was a physicist. So, And I'm not saying it's all about science and that's the be and end all of life. It's not. But the point is, we didn't have all these people going through academia who were challenging the system, who were pushing the system forward and saying, we need to evolve and change. We've created a system in the West which is just subservience and no one's allowed to challenge anything. You just have to accept the status quo. You will reverse engineer, as Ken said, the, the out, the, we, this is the outcome. This is how we're going to tell you what really happened. And because of that, and that's the whole basis, empires collapse because they stop evolving. They stop going, we need to, we need to grow. We need to innovate. We need to keep developing. We need to make the next generation's life better than the previous one. And that's the whole basis. That, that's the only reason why China's going to succeed is because it keeps striving to do better. It wants to do better for the next generation and the next generation. And there's people working today who go, well, I won't benefit from, in my lifetime from this, but my children will, my great-grandchildren will, maybe my great-great-grandchildren will. That's the philosophy, and that's something in the West where we all want everything today. We're not interested in tomorrow. We're not interested in building a better future not everybody, of course, but that's the sort of attitude. And we've, we've 
destroyed the education system, but the irony of them destroying it is they've destroyed themselves. Yep. They've destroyed their own empire in totality because they forgot the important thing that a nation or groups of nations have to evolve. If they'd allowed the United I mean, the United States is a great example. If it had done all the right things, which it could have done and should have done, then the United States would have would have would have been the the dominant nation, but and not a hegemon, but it could have been the greatest nation though, and I've said this only recently, that the rest of the world would look up to and want to aspire to. And it yeah, could the, have done all the, the right the, things. The city on made. the hill. The city on the hill. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so so th- this is the, the this is the problem we have and this is why this idea that these people sitting in their ivory towers at the Western. There's a, for me, there's a complete disconnect between what people perceive to be the deep state and what it actually is. And, uh, but anyway, the point is this hierarchy that people think exists, and no, there aren't families, and no, there aren't these few people who sit there. There's all these competing influences that, that have this controlling influence, for want of a better description, that's now falling apart. The one thing is they don't have the capability. And if you're afraid of anything, be afraid of the fact that when all this collapses, they don't have the ability to change. They don't have an understanding of what needs to be done. They can't see beyond the, the end of their nose. They are completely wedded to a system that doesn't involve e- evolution. The political system, no one's going to challenge it because they know they're finished and it's the end of their political career. So they're wedded to a system. They're not going to challenge it. And we don't have the people... In the entrepreneurial spirit and the people who can drag the United States, the UK and Europe in the right direction. That's the thing people should be extremely concerned about. Now, this idea of these people like you know, the, 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 the World Economic Formal Act dictating the future. Well, you might want to ask three quarters of the world that signed up to the new multipolar world. Ask them if they're going to accept whatever her brained idea that these people may think is a reality, but it's not. And the principal reason they're coming out with these statements is because they know that it's over for them. They know the empire's gone, and they're trying to desperately think a way of reinventing themselves <clears throat> so they can stay relevant. And they're irrelevant, and whatever people perceive that they think they're going to do, it's not going to happen. Because here's the point. it only The only reason the existing empire worked is because everyone is were adhered to the dollar through fear and intimidation and whatever else. When the dollar's gone, the empire's gone. When the empire's gone, what are they going to do? Who are they going to dictate to with what? They don't have the dollar anymore. They can't blackmail people because they don't have the dollar anymore. They can't influence the world the way they have done because the only way they were able to do that was with the dollar. When the dollar's gone, it's over. Big gun. You know, one thing I want to add real quick is this. There's a gentleman by the name of Jeffrey R. Barnett, and he was contributed to one of the books that was written by, uh, I believe it was Samuel Huntington, and it was called The Clash of Civilizations and uh, the, yeah, the Remaking of the World. That's what it is, Clash of Civilizations and the Remaking of the World. And there were 14 points that highlighted to basically any single real modern power, you got to control these 14 points. And it's these 14 points that the West domineered for so many, so many decades. Okay, and those 14 points are, and I'm going to go through them real quick. And I'm going to tie it into, you know, what is predicated on, on these 14 points and, and what is required to maintain your, your hegemon or your power or your influence or your livelihood, so to speak. So the f- 14 points is this. 
you got to own and operate the international banking system. That's point number one. You got to have any. You have to have you, the the second thing is you got to have some sort of domineering control over currencies. The third thing is you have to be the world's principal uh, customer. Right? You got to be the place. You got to be the the market for the world. You got to be the hottest, most liquid market. You got to be the place where people want to invest. The fourth thing is you got to be able to provide the world's finished goods. Right. <laughs> You got to be the place to, to, to where people will buy. You want to buy that? That country makes the best stuff. I want to go ahead and want to buy that. You got to dominate international capital markets again. You got to have the most solvent, most liquid markets, right? You have to exert a considerable moral leadership within many societies. You got to be that "quote unquote" city on the hill. You got to have that that uh, we're force for good in this world, right? You got to have that marketing ethos, that ethos right there, right? You got to have the seventh thing is that you got to be capable of massive military in- intervention or being able to project military force where it needs to be in order for you to guarantee or protect your, your interests. The eighth thing is you got to be able to have control of the seas. The ninth thing, you got to have the, the control of the most advanced technical research and development. Ten, you got to be able to control leading edge technical education. There it is technical edu- economy, markets, technology, education. You're going to see a theme here. The 11th thing is you got to be able to access or dominate the access to space. That's very important in this modern day. The fourth thing is you have to be able to have a dominant aerospace industry. Okay? Space, industry, technology, education, mar- banking, marketing, right? I mean, uh, uh, markets, excuse me. The 13th thing is you have to dominate international communications. It's got to be your tech, your technology, your devices that are out there it should be clamored for and the 14th thing you got to dominate the high-tech weapons industry those 14 points were the 14 points that that allowed the west to dominate for decades on end it allowed to dominate because every single one of those 14 points you can hinge it to one thing so what jesus said all the laws Hinge upon one law, love your neighbor, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Well, all these 14 points, these 14 laws hinges upon one and one thing alone. You got to have a physical manufacturing base without which you cannot do any of those 14 things. And if you look at those 14 things, those are the 14 points, international banking system, domination of currencies, uh, markets, Leadership in technologies, uh, military intervention, uh, uh, technical research development, access to space, aerospace industry, international communication. All these points that I just read off to you guys are points that the West has lost. Who's filling the gap? China. Who's filling the gap? Russia. Who's filling the gap? The multipolar world. Mm-hmm. Access to space, access to banking, domination of currencies, creating a fair neck, human rights. Is human rights blabbering about it? Is human rights giving glib platitudes that are veneer thin that means nothing? Or is it lifting 850 million people out of poverty? You tell me. You tell me what human rights is. The average American breaks his arm. He can, he can go to financial ruin if he doesn't have medical insurance. And even then, with medical insurance, it might not be covered. You tell me. Good. Um, I don't know who wants to take it, Matt or, or Ken Gentlemen, anyone would like to follow follow that up? Absolutely. That's <laughs> okay, it in a yeah. that's, that is it. No, but that that's it in a nutshell. 
That's why all this idea that the the West is collapsing itself and it's going to reinvent itself, and these these evil people are going to come back and control us all, as I say, like hamsters in AI wheel or something, is nonsense. You you cannot you cannot have that level of control when you've lost control of everything, and when the only thing that you ever really controlled anyone with was was with the dollar, is gone. It's over. So these people are finished. They know they're finished and they're desperately trying to reinvent themselves and find a way that the world will accept them in the future. Well, the world's rejecting the dollar, so they're not going to accept them. The rest of the world is is wise to the reality that these people are not nice people to engage with. We're not going to engage with you. We're refusing to subsidize your exorbitant privilege anymore, which is why the world rejected the dollar, refuses to buy U.S. treasuries, and now, and this is the fundamental principle why the, the the Americans and the Western Empire detest China and Russia because they've rejected the dollar, and why by rejecting the dollar, what does it mean? The United States can't give these nations treasuries, and they get free dollars. So the the ignominy is now they have to print the dollars themselves. By printing the dollar themselves, they debase the currency, they destroy it. They allow this bubble that they've managed to keep inside Wall Street now in Main Street, and it's accelerating their collapse. And they despise and hate the Chinese and the Russians because they're killing their system, and their system is dying. And the Chinese and and the Russians are principally the nations responsible for why this has happened because they birthed the multipolar world. They birthed the new reality. That's why you get told all this nonsense about what Russia's doing, Navalny, the Scripples. The nonsense about the China's doing all these things in, in, in uh, like Xinjiang. Utter rubbish. There is nothing going on in Xinjiang, et cetera, et cetera, because they're desperately trying to condition people in the West. Don't embrace this new world. It's evil. It's, it's everything that you, you don't want. You need to hang on to this world. And, and people should be looking at this world going, well, what's it done for me? Nothing. Nothing. What has it done in the last 20 years? Nothing. Why is everything costing me more, more than it's ever costed? Why did, not that I'm saying this should be the case, but there used to be a time when one person in a family went to work. Now both people have to work just to keep a roof over there. No if one's you have a dog, you have to send your dog out and to work as well. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the, this is the point. So that's why they're telling you what they're telling you. And, and that is one of the, unfortunately, the big mistakes with, with the Trump did. He jumped on the anti-Chinese bandwagon and everyone who supports Trump believes that China is the anti-Christ effectively. And it was a big mistake. But Paul, China's controlling America. China has control over Washington D.C. Paul. No, no. Well, that's the it's well, it's the Russian. Mind you, the latest one. Do you well, see you go to a liberal. It's the Russians that are in control of D.C. And if you no, go to a the, conservative, the, the, it's uh, it's the Chinese that are. So make. <laughs> no, it, no. It's also in this country. Apparently, the Iranians have been meddling in Scottish elections. Oh my God! Amazing. God, amazing. But anyway, we, we're sort of digressing on some frivolity. But but the, but the point is, is that's why they hate. China and Russia so much. Well, they do everything to convince all of us that they're the enemy, that they're, that's totalitarianism, that, that you know, that's not the future. You need to embrace... The, no, the, the CCP the, is not evil, and the CCP does not enslave their people. That is utter Western propaganda rubbish. And There's no concentration camps. There's no slave camps. No. It's, 
It's ridiculous. <laughs> well, hundreds of millions of Chinese uh, leave I, I every year. After you're done, Paul, I want to. I want to. Yeah. I want to destroy that Xinjiang uh, nonsense of concentration. Well, I, camps well, I, I'm, I'm very. I'll, I'll obviously hand over to you in that regard. But, but my point is, I've been there. I've seen the whole place with my own eyes. It's utter nonsense. But I'll let you carry on, Vic. When, when you, uh, I'll, I'll pass it either after this. Uh, it's a quick rant, and then I'll hand it over to either Ken or, or Matt. You guys can jump in. Yeah, yeah. Um, folks, when you hear about the, oh, my God, the Uyghur genocide. The Uyghur genocide. They're killing Uyghurs over there. And they're picking cotton. I mean, think about the, the, the imagery. These guys are crafty in the West. Okay? We know that the word Uyghur rhymes with uh, a certain N-word in, 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 in the Western world. That's, that's, that's verboten, right? You can't, you can't talk about it. And they talk about picking cotton. So psychoschematically, it sounds silly. It sounds stupid. It sounds silly. But, play, but, 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 but you, know, stay, you know, walk with me here. Walk with me. The imagery immediately that occurs, a knee-jerk on the average man or woman in the streets in the United States or in the West is this. <gasps> There's a slave population that are wearing tattered sackcloth and rucksack clothing with ropes for belts and sandals and they're out in some cotton field picking the cotton. They don't realize that the cotton's actually picked by advanced machinery. <laughs> oh, the Uyghur genocide. Let's talk about the Uyghur genocide. The most popular singer in China right now, the most popular pop singer in China is a Uyghur woman. The Uyghur language is emblazoned on the Chinese currency. Uyghur students have access to college, right? The, the, the Uyghur, first of all, the Uyghur population was never, they were never shackled with the one-child policy, which only, and most Americans don't know is, most Americans think that Chinese is just one ethnicity. No, there's, there's many ethnicities in China, and there's eight different Islamic branches in China as well. Now, the Uyghurs were never shackled with the one-child policy. They had many kids. And the Uyghur kids had an easier time to get into college or, or university. It was actually Greece for them. And when they got to college and university, they had prayer rooms. So if they wanted prayer, they had halal kitchens and food served to them. Okay? So the, the idiot West, because they understand that 80% of you don't even have a passport and your idea of vacation is to go to Florida. 80% of the West don't really travel. They understand this, Right? So they'll, they'll sell you this bullshit, hoping to rally you up. So you get behind sanctions, which is modern siege warfare. So you get behind military or the, any sort of military provocation. There's no genocide happening. There's no slave labor. There's none of this crap happening. And the problem with the CCP, and I agree with this doctor. I forgot his last name. He's, he's a brilliant guy. He worked with... Uh, uh, um, um, the the uh, the great leader of, of Singapore, okay, I forgot what his name was, but he said it best. He said the problem with the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, is that it has the word communist in there. They should rebrand themselves as the Chinese Civilization Party. Think about this for a second. So you're going to believe the so you don't believe your media, you don't believe your government when it comes to banking and Wall Street and financial collapse. You don't believe your government when it comes to 9-11. You don't believe your government when it comes to weapons of mass distraction. You don't believe your government when it comes to any of the wars that they're trying to sell you. But all of a sudden, when it comes to China, you start believing them. Come on, folks. Matt or Ken, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. 
No, and I, I think it was Lee Kuan Yew who was the uh, the. Yeah, Lee Kuan Yew. There's an Indian guy who was with Lee Kuan Yew. His name escaped me. He he goes. Um, I think he wrote the book. Uh, when China wins. Oh yeah, oh, I forgot his name too. That's Kishori. Yeah, Kishori. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the the um, this idea as well that like when you, when you look at Xinjiang. There, there is so much propaganda that we here in the West are, 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 have poured down our throats every day in regards to this. You know, like we're, we're declaring China a genocide country. Uh, our parliaments, our congresses are all doing this, falling lock in, lockstep into the Five Eyes agenda. And you look at like, where is this intel coming from that's proving that th- there's a genocide going on? And I was just watching um, a press conference given by the leader of the, the Tibetan separatist movement. Uh, and sitting right beside him is the head of the uh, the World uh, Uyghur Congress that's centered in or based in Germany, funded primarily by the National Endowment for Democracy. Um, <laughs> on the on the actual NED website where they talk about their funding for the the Uyghur Congress, they are explicit that they call it East uh, Turkestan. They don't even call it you know <laughs> um, Xinjiang. And um, and he's explicit. This and in, in this guy's speech, he even says that a lot of the the Muslims um, we can we can get support and learn from a lot of the Muslims who had been fighting and getting experience in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, to help us fight against China. Like and and here it is: the the U.S. military intelligence complex actually funding the thing that is working openly with. Uh, Saudi-sponsored, Western-sponsored terrorist groups that we've been using as a tool to overthrow uh, countries we didn't like in the Middle East for Did years that. since Zbigniew Brzezinski kicked, kicked this off back in the 70s. So it's it's like the level of hypocrisy and lies is astounding, especially when you consider that here in the West, especially down in the United States and here in Canada, we have you know a prison labor industrial complex that pays prisoners openly uh, like 20 cents an hour to do work for producing goods used by the military, you know, produced in stores. It's, it's that, you know, look at what we've done to our, our native communities across North America, especially in Canada where these people, you know, the suicide rate is like five to 10 times higher than in the rest of the, the population of Canada for natives living in the Arctic zones who have been cut off from any access to having jobs, the basic, basic human rights, right? The, the right to, to make life better, to have hope for the future. All of these rights that were once enunciated, quite ironically, by Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his four freedoms. Um, freedom from want, freedom from freedom of worship, freedom from fear, freedom of speech. Like these were concepts that were understood as the, the, the driving force of what gave the U.S. Uh, any moral relevance in the universe why it was a special and good place and continues to be like the u.s constitution is a beautiful document its history has a lot of beauty in it and fdr with henry wallace understood that when they had made negotiations with the shah of iran with the the presidents of of latin american countries african countries when when they were organizing the terms of what they wanted a win-win system of post-world war ii prosperity to be as as the military uh, production systems w- would be retooled to become arsenals for nation building, not just for Europe under the Marshall Plan, but it was supposed to be um, the extension of the Tennessee Valley Authority, the rural electrification projects, and all of these great infrastructure projects that the U.S. built 
throughout the 30s and 40s to extend that to other countries so that they would also have the right to develop full spectrum economies and achieve the four freedoms enunciated by Roosevelt. What happened? You know, people who, who look at this, you know, you, you could easily investigate this story, history, but Roosevelt died far too soon. And, you know, the, the, the enemies, his enemies who had funded fascism on Wall Street had assets put in, into position to replace him like Truman, who dropped nuclear bombs unnecessarily onto onto nations like, you know, on, onto Japan. Uh, the OSS was purged of all of its its patriots who understood how the the how Wall Street and how the city of London financial cartels were operating. They were all purged and a new Iron Curtain was brought down as the OSS was disbanded and the CIA was created and a new Anglo-American special relationship was put into play that perverted all of the instruments that were designed to be instruments for good, like the IMF, the World Bank, the, the Bretton Woods instruments were all turned into these, you know, what we know, they were, they became neo-colonial instruments to subdue and destroy nations from having as access to those rights. Today, China is filling that space. The U.S. has sufficiently been recolonized in many ways by a lot of the the enemies of FDR, the the people that JFK was trying to keep out of positions of power. Um, this is the force that you know it, it's got many names. Some people have called it deep state, whatever, but it's not American. It's it's a globally extended apparatus, and they have sufficient, you know, they thought that they could sort of take over control of Western governments and then impose a hegemony of a new standard onto the world as a whole to, you know, get rid of industrial civilization under a slow kill. And now they've gotten, they can't do that anymore. Now that Russia, China, the multipolar alliance have broken free, have created a completely new viable system They're They don't know what to do at all. And you got people like William Hague, you know, the former, uh, uh, I think it was the Secretary of Defense, right, of of Britain, um, who had just written an op-ed saying, and, it, and it, it's excruciating to read this because he he's like, Ch we need China to decarbonize the world. That's the the number one priority, but China is also now our our primary rival and threat. We need them, but we hate them. We need and and they can't resolve. How do they how do they keep this equation in place? It doesn't work anymore. So it's it's kind of funny in that sense just to see these Rumpelstiltskins tearing themselves to pieces because China and Russia have guessed their names. There's actually a good point to that with the UK. There is, in the last decade, enormous Chinese investment that continues and that they don't like to admit it's happening. But mm -hmm. but if China hadn't invested all the money, then there'll be no money to to yeah. to in terms of growth investment. They bought. I mean. It's like I say, you know, wherever you were that uh, the U.S. looks, China owns things. It's the same with the United States. They own enormous amounts of, of assets and real estate and everything else in, in the United States. And it's the same in the U.K. They've bankrolled major projects. And without that money, it would never have happened. So, but then that's just this politics. There's the politics that we have to be seeing that, uh, to counter China and Russia. And then there's a kind of realization outside the, the stupid political system that, boy, we, without them, we, we can't, well, particularly with China, economically, without them, we can't function, we can't exist. So we can only push this so far because, because ultimately the problem the West has is, and this is the United States' biggest problem. When Trump came in, he was supposed to go to the Chinese and say, we need trillions of dollars to, to rebuild America uh, in terms of infrastructure. 
And the Chinese would have done it at that point. They would have financed it. But of course, what happened? Okay, and I'll put portion blame on anyone. It's just what happened has happened. And now China is not going to uh, issue the United States with six, seven trillion dollars of of debt on because why would they do that after what's happened in the last three or four years? And that was a big mistake. So the U.S. is now in that position where it can't. What's it going to do? I mean, finance it itself by just printing money? Well, that's completely unsustainable. And and I think there's now a realization for decades of neglect. The U.S. could spend ten trillion dollars. It's not even come going to come close to being where it needs to be. So at some point, it's going to have to accept the realization that. You know, I'm not saying there's going to be another Bretton Woods in that sense, but there's going to have to be a. a the moment in history where the U.S. and, and the West sits down with China, Russia, and 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 all the Europeans are all going to have to sit there and go, okay, what are we going to do about this? What 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 do we? I mean, hopefully, someone somewhere who decides to behave like an adult in the United States is going to accept that that's a reality. Because if they don't, the U.S. just collapses. Then what? You know, what's going to happen? That it's going to sit there and. And do they think China's just going to run to the rescue? No, China will just sit there and do nothing until, because they don't want to be accused of interfering. So I'll sit there and say, well, until you come to us uh, to have some sort of resolution on how we're going to deal with this, we're going to do nothing. We're absolutely, we're not going to be seen to interfere. But at some point, the US is going to have to do this. And yeah. that was one of the two big mistakes in Trump's administration, whether he's responsible or not is irrelevant. China, and walking away from the JCPOA, two, the two big mistakes, and I've said this many times, they were foolish errors of judgment. Whoever was advising him to do whatever or whatever the situation was, um, they were big mistakes. And the U.S. is paying a big price with regards to the JCPOA now. And and also the U.S. is, gonna, is paying a big price for this idea they could have a trade war with China, which was farcical. And let's face it, the U.S. trade deficit's growing, growing, growing. So they didn't win this trade war with China. They've effectively lost the trade war, which was always going to be the case. Yeah, from I mean, the minute they in, invoked it. Yep, absolutely right. I mean, there's no way the uh, a, a debtor nation is going to out um, outdo its creditor nation. You know, and you know, they're, 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 it, it's ridiculous. And um, to even think, Paul, it's even ridiculous to think. One of the things I want to touch real quick is there's a lot of people get confused. Um, they're like, well, if, if the U.S. were to help China with infrastructure, which we need, because we can't build a jack squat out here. Jack squat. Ever been to New York? Ever drove around New York City? It's yes. Terrifying. It's terrible. It's a third world. You fly out of LaGuardia, you have like leaking ceilings and whatnot. I was, it was a pleasure for me to fly out of LaGuardia's new terminal, Terminal B. I was like, oh my God, this is actually looks like a little miniature Singapore. So there's a little bit of help, but it took them like 20 years to build. It's ridiculous, <laughs> right? Let me explain something to you folks. A lot of you internet keyboard jockeys who have zero experience working in the real world and actually dealing with companies and people that are, that are in China, that are in Russia, that are in Europe. Let me explain something to you guys. When you look at Africa, okay, here's the model. Well, debt traps. There's all kinds of debt traps. They're going to get us in debt traps, and if we don't pay them, they're going to take us. They're going to, they're going to claim the infrastructure. The African debt has been restructured by China 89 different times. They've created three different default swaps uh, three times in order to restructure that debt. That is massive. Compare that to the West. Compare also the fact that the Liberian Minister of Public Works has said this, for the first time in our lives, 
we're able to see our resources leave the country and something built of real value in its place. Resources are leaving and wealth is coming in. And for the first time in our lives, our capitals are being connected by infrastructure, high-speed rail, highways. This is a complete different model than what the West has been running for the last several hundred years. That's number one. Number two, you have to realize one thing, okay? They realize that, that building a mutually beneficial trading block is more beneficial for them as a whole in the long term. Because why? They work on 5, 10, 20, 30-year plans as opposed to the West, which work on 2, 3, and 4-year plans. It's a completely different thing. This is the difference here, folks. This is the difference. This is how you build. This is the open, and what Matt always talks about, the open modular system. And then people will be like, well, you know, the, the Chinese project, the Chinese are beholden to the city of London. No, they're not. No, they're not. As somebody who has very close connections with the London Bullion Market Association, a lot of things that go on outside of the banking system and this, that, and the other, no. Okay, no. It's not even in the same scope. The complex geopolitical world, geostrategic world, has many, many, many layers that most people are not privy to. I remember an internet, internet rumor uh, years ago. The Chinese are going to come here. They're going to take over America. And they're going to take our women. Folks, the one, and again, I'm going to repeat myself again. The one-child policy only applied to native Han Chinese. Okay? Native Han Chinese. Calm it down. Again, be careful of internet jockeys and these websites like Billy, uh, Jimmy John's Conspiracy Corner and, and Bobby's Conspiracy Garage. You go there, you're reading bullshit from people who has no clue. All they're doing is creating echo chambers. They, you have one bullshitter who goes onto another bullshitter's website, and they think they have, they have some sort of a world. They have no, no experience working in there. They, they haven't done a shred of – they haven't done one, one red cent of actual work. Okay? It's a different world, folks. It's a different world. So um, uh, Matt, Ken, or, or, or Paul, whichever one of you guys. Go ahead. You know, you've just just a very brief point, and I'll give way to any, anyone else who wants to comment. It always comes back to this point, and I've said when you in, you understand the complexity of the world, we all go to bed at night, and the world stays pretty much the same when we wake up in the morning. What most people aren't aware is what has to happen to make that the case, and that involves cooperation between apparent arch enemies as well, like China and the United States, and Russia and the United States, or Russia and Britain. There has to be this level of cooperation to make sure the world doesn't tip into some crisis or other, because there are always crises going on that, that, are, that are far bigger, potentially, than anything that anyone in the alt media would like to convince you with. And it doesn't ultimately mean that on another level, they profusely hate the Chinese and the Russians, because they do. But there has to be some on some level, mutual level of cooperation because the risk to, to everybody is far greater. And that is an important point. And he, you make the point very well, V, that the world is an immensely complicated place. Not all this black and white nonsense is nonsense. The world's a myriad of shades of grey. And it's like, you know, this conventional wisdom, the city of London controls anything. The city of London controls nothing. The city of London has been uh, in decline for decades. Just look at what happened in the aftermath of Brexit. The European Union put the City of London to the sword, and the City of London sat there and can't do anything about it. 
that's because the city of london doesn't have this power it's not all this alt media stories about the city of london does this and this and that happens this is not reality the world has changed immensely and when i get people in touch with me going but the rothschilds did this in 1837 i'm going you realize how long ago that was do you think the world is just static and just look what happens in the last 12 months, never mind the last 185, 200 years. The world's a very different place. What happened 100 years ago is not relevant today. What's happened since World War II is not relevant anymore today. It's a constantly evolving world. There are big fundamental changes happening all the time. And using anecdotes in history to justify why something's happening today, because somebody in history made a comment once, is irrelevant. I mean... Otherwise, if we had that basis, we, we, we could pin any point in history and said, well, the world's not changed since then, or that's how the world's going to be in the future. So you need to be extremely careful what you believe to be reality. I'm not saying the world's a great place. The world's got a lot of nasty, evil, disgusting things going on that are deplorable and make me sick to the stomach. But that's a world of difference from this idea of how the world functions and operates. So we yeah. have to be extremely careful and 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 realize that it's not as black and white as people would like to be. And 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 I made this point, and increasingly so. I think we need to get to the point in the alt media where the alt media should be about people being correct, about people making valid observations, not about people out there who just say what people want to hear because they because that's what they want to be told. It never happens. It fails repeatedly, and people just forgive them and forget it. And then the next time they repeat it, yes, that's great. And then there's people like us who tell the brutal truth, and people don't like it. Well, you've been deceived all your lives. Now, I'm not saying everyone in the alt media is deceiving you, because that's not true either. But surely, after spending all our lives being deceived or not, not understanding reality, then we should be embracing the people who look to present the reality. That's surely we should have got to that point in history rather than or this idea that I want to be entertained rather than informed. You want to right. be entertained, go and watch some crap on television or go and watch, actually go and watch mainstream news because that's pretty entertaining. But, but we need to be going on the point of understanding what's happening and being informed. Yeah. And having to deal with uncomfortable realities. I almost get people into getting in touch with us going, I really wish you didn't say what you said. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Go, well, I'm not here to make you happy. I'd rather, I didn't, I wish I didn't have to say the things we have to say, but we're not here to entertain you, make you happy. We're here to try and dissect the reality of what's going on. And that's extremely important. And don't be quite so forgiving of people whose track record of ever predicting anything is pretty much a big fat zero. Because what are they actually telling you? Nothing. Yep. And we could tell you all magical stories about yep. things that are going to happen. You know, and I'm not going to get into that. But this is an important point. And everyone who's on today is trying to present to you factual reality. And that's really the only commodity that we really need to hang on to going forward. Um, yes. And as things, you know, we go through all this enormous changes that are happening. Yeah, very well said, Paul. Jim, I want to move to closing comments. Um, Ken, we'll start with go just in reverse order. So, Ken, if you want to go first, and then we'll go V and uh, Matthew and then Paul. Go ahead, Ken. Yeah. One of the last things I want to go ahead and uh, instill here is that 
we've talked a lot about geopolitics and how the U.S. Uh, one is attempting to hold on to the status quo while uh, hindering uh, the future as it evolves uh, from Eurasia and from from the East. But one of the most important things you have to remember is that we individuals here in America um, are being affected by just about every new uh, political policy, monetary policy, economic policy being put out. Whether it's the uh, start of the destruction of the family system uh, through the creation of the welfare state, uh, MMT now, the consequences six to nine months after the stimulus bills, et cetera, et cetera, people don't want to work. Uh, people are losing their skills. Uh, they're calling now. They're standing up for uh, socialism, for uh, free money from the government uh, to replace them having to, to uh, provide for a job. We're getting inflation uh, no matter how much they want to admit, which is going to affect uh, prices and just about everything you do. We're about to see if this court ruling that came out yesterday, we're about to see millions of people uh, th thrust out of their homes. If you think the homeless problem in California is uh, getting bad, all yes. these different policies implemented by the government. And the problem is, is of course, is one, they're not going to admit it. And two, they're going to double, triple, quadruple down. So things are inevitably about to accelerate and get worse and worse and worse at the local level, much less what we're seeing ge geopolitically. Um, you, you know, many of us, uh, Gadfly uh, in our own uh, bailiwicks, have been trying to, uh, to not predict the exact timing, but to speak on these things a decade ago, uh, you know, back in 2008, back in 2000. One uh, after 9-11. We've been doing it for nearly 15, 20 years to prepare for the day that is coming right now. And inevitably, those are going to say, well, I've got to wait and see before I want to act. Unfortunately, think, you know, if they, if they can get away with uh, programming the people to, to accept lockdowns, to then accept uh, destruction of their business, destruction of the core, uh, destruction of the uh, very capitalist system that sustained them and their ancestors uh, for the last two, uh, 215, 275 years. If they can do that in a very short amount of time, then what you have to realize is that it is far too late. You are either prepared or you're not prepared. Now it's just a matter of what is going to be the consequences of the destruction that we're going to see over the next uh, one to seven, eight years. And if any, if uh, what happened in Europe in the 1920s and 1930s, and then again during the Great Depression here in the United States, especially since our birth rate now uh, is down well below sustainability, every single thing in America is corrupt. Education, government, finance, family, social, religion, Everything is corrupt. There's no rebuilding or reforming America, no making America great again. It's done. It is It is in the uh, final throes of collapse. The only question is, are we prepared to survive to be able to come out of that collapse and be able to uh, move forward? Or are we just going to be like the millions, if not tens of millions, who are going to uh, either die 
um, or not be able to, uh, to handle. We've got about five minutes. Ken about coming. Okay. I'm done. Uh, v- okay. Thank you for that. Ken V go for it. Well, what I like to say is this, it, people need to get beyond the stupid binary thinking. Like what the heck's wrong with people, man? Like I said, it's a complex world. There's no, there's no, there's no like best system than perfect system. Perfection doesn't exist. Right. But there's realities and real realities you need to deal with. Stop thinking binary and stop listening to idiots who have zero experience in the real world. That's it. That's, that's all I got to say. Matt, Eric, go for it, brother. <laughs> uh, as <clears throat> Machiavelli wrote in his uh, opening of the, the first of his books of Livy um, or books on Livy, that um, before society collapses, it has a choice of either going back to its foundational principles uh, that gave rise to it to begin with or face the consequences of its corruption, which is a collapse. So it's a very lawful thing, I think, and a very strong insight that there it's not predetermined that it will necessarily collapse because it ultimately is being it's a it's a system unlike planets or the ecosystem, which is defined by a factor of free will and decision making. But at the same time, it's lawful um, if it does. Um, We do have certain openings, certain potentialities, and, and ultimately potentials are all that we have right now. That is the future, right? It's underdetermined. We have China that we know, as well as uh, Russia, that has offered many olive branches. Their ambassador to the United States has offered on many occasions over the years uh, opportunities to work with the Belt and Road Initiative to create billions of dollars of profit. There's a lot of incentive to do it and to create a a sort of foundation for a a sustainable, a real sustainable uh, future for all of us that benefits. It's a win-win. It benefits everybody. Uh, Canada, too. All Western countries have this offer, which is still on the table. Ultimately, currently, um, we need a lot of humble pie, I think. You know, there's a lot of ego, a lot of arrogance that's taking control. And I don't think that they're going to go and accept these olive branches anytime soon. And perhaps a little bit of pain is needed to uh, start, you know, eating some of that humble pie uh, before that can be accepted. I don't see an an intrinsic solution to saving the U.S. or having it rediscover its foundational principles currently from the governing structures, the elite's running the show in the United States. I don't see much there. Same for Canada. I think something else needs to happen to change the dynamic overall uh, for something. Trump did represent a potential, but he made a lot of, like Paul said, bad flubs, uh, strategic decision-making uh, errors on China, on a variety of things, which uh, which were, were lost opportunities. Um, to get that back, I don't know. As far as Paul, I didn't know your your views on history. Um, that could maybe be a discussion that we we have in a follow up conversation. Um, I, I I find that I I disagree that longer waves of history affect the present. I do think that when Kissinger went to China and had a conversation conversation with Xu Enlai and he asked him about the French Revolution, what are his thoughts? Xu Enlai's response was, "It's too soon to tell." I think we're very insightful because Xu Enlai and he's serious that he thinks. Uh, he didn't know, like 230 years later, he, he was like, it, it's still too soon to tell the consequences of the French Revolution on world geopolitics. And the Chinese tend to think in broader thousand-year, multi-generational terms, pat, past and future. Kissinger also thinks on a longer arc when he talks about, you know, in the 1990s with Tony Blair talking about uh, the post-Westphalian age that we have to bring about with the, the 9-11 world, post-9-11 world. Um, most people don't know about the 1648 a piece of Westphalia that set up the modern nation state system that Kissinger and his ilk were were 
desperate to, to undermine for a, a long time. So they're aware that these longer forces of history are having an exert an influence on present geopolitics in ways that are much more powerful than many people realize. Just like future historians generations from now will look back on our, our decision making at this time and realize that it had a direct impact on their lives 80, 90 or more years into the future. So I just want to, maybe we could talk about that in a future show. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Gentlemen, we're at the well, end of the show. Uh, did everybody give their closing thoughts? I'll, I'll just, comments, I'll just, well, I'll just very briefly say one thing. And because I don't want to repeat what I've already said, but the important thing is we're at a, a juncture in history. And part of my reason why a lot of history is no longer relevant and discussions people are having now are no longer relevant is because this is the most profound turning point in humanity's history and in world history we understand and know about. There's lots we perhaps don't know. And I've likened it to breaking the glass ceiling. We are at this opportunity where we have to break the glass ceiling because if we don't break the glass ceiling, we're just going to end up destroying ourselves. I think we've gone past the point that we will destroy ourselves. So to break the glass ceiling, it will change the world in ways and it won't happen overnight, but I think we will look back in 20, 30, 40, 50 years, 100 years, and people will look at that point and go, that was the biggest turning point in history in terms of abandoning a whole bunch of principles that, that, that we, we existed in the past, and we're moving forward in a new direction. That's why I don't, I mean, I don't, I see, yes, there are, his, history has relevance. I'm not disputing that. But what I'll say, and we can, yeah, most certainly have a discussion about this in the context of, different ideas I have is it's that big a profound change that that history isn't going to repeat itself in the sense of yeah and Ken's absolutely right about cycles and I'm not disputing anything that anyone said today but this is the biggest fundamental change that we're going to have and not the old media idea of what this fundamental change is and all that kind of nonsense that's out there as well but this is that bigger fundamental change that what's happened in history is not going to apply per se in the future because we are making the biggest kind of, it's not a U-turn, we're making this biggest change in direction that humanity has ever done in, in history that we understand. And on that basis, that's why I don't hold as much sway as, as the historical context and things that happened decades ago will necessarily apply in the future. Yep. Very well said, Paul. Uh, everyone, gentlemen, I want to thank you for a great discussion today. I know the audience truly appreciated as well. Uh, please remember to hit that like button as well as a share. And if you have not done so yet, jump over to each uh, contributor's platform. Again, roguenews.com, theseriousreport.com. You can check out Matthew's work over at his substack, matthewerrett.substack.com. Uh, com, as well as the gadfly so thank you all for tuning in and we will do this again real soon everyone stay safe and we are over and out all right guys